I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. And you're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco. All things reptile related. And the people who love them. As part of the Herpeticulture Network. As he lights his cigarette. Here we are. His cigarette. In the darkness of the Boca Raton night. The mouth of the rat. camel crush snaps oh so gently and crisp. <sighs> Hello. This is episode 147 of Snakes and Stogies. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. I'm joined by Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. Hello. This episode is brought to you by blackboxcages.com. You need a cage. You need a rack. You know where it's at. I spent every moment that I could today, like, like when I had like two seconds to breathe at work, I would hop on my phone. And I would start looking at rocks that I'm going to make out of foam and paint to put in my soon-to-be-mine XT2 two-foot sliders from blackboxcages.com. Ooh. I'm trying to think if there was a, if there was a species that I had currently that I would want to like really go all out on in terms of a setup where I'm, I'm doing that same thing of, you know, looking at pictures of the, of the range and trying to mimic that as best as I could, like which species would I do that with? It's pretty hard, pretty hard choice. The problem is, is you got to pick a species that you know, isn't going to destroy what you build. You know what I mean? Which is also tough, which is also tough, especially with a lot of the stuff that that they're all, they're all rat snakes. So they're all going to be right. Right. I mean, then that doesn't mean that you can't have more enrichment, more naturalistic decor. You just have to be a little more tactful with it. Stuff that can and will be knocked over, it'll still look good and feel good, even if it is knocked like over. Like it was supposed to be there. Right, exactly. Like, like nature knocked it over and set it exactly, there. Exactly, exactly. I basically uh, was talking to my buddy Chris at work, who's a, a, a closet herber, and uh, he's big on the foam and carving and all that stuff and i was like look man i think what i'm gonna do is i think i'm just gonna make like a hundred fake pieces of shale and like slate rock like some of them will be dinner plate size some will be the size of like you know a a silver dollar and i'm just gonna make like a hundred of them and just throw them in there and just let it look like it's just rocky and like Like if there's like an old slide or something yeah exactly and 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 or dare i say uh you know a talus and if the snake knocks it over and it avalanches on the snake who cares because it's foam you know right they're not crushed yeah let it make its own nooks and crannies whatever so yeah it's uh i don't know so i was looking through kevin messenger's you know asian rat snakes because uh ganyasoma has been kind of all the rage Oh yeah, for me lately. So I was looking at what he had written about Persinum, and they had pictures of the habitat and stuff. And I'm, 
it would be pretty easy to to replicate something like that. Um, sure. I just I think I think rhinos would probably be the one that I'd I'd have to go all out for because you know unlike like the chondros they're always out you know they're always doing yeah. stuff and the jants and i you know it's it's sort of wasted on them in a way because they're not out a whole lot and uh the percent of them i don't know exactly what those are going to be like if they're going to be out like the rhinos are if they're going to be a little more elusive like the jants and i or or what but it's going to be that's going to be, we're going to find out of at, you know, soon and they're going to get a setup. That's going to be not like all out, you know, going uh, to the nines with everything. It's going to be similar to the Jansen I cage where there is going to be live plants. There is going to be cork. There is going to be things. It's going to be naturalistic and not necessarily yeah. sort of the, the whole, the whole ge- uh, deal. So, yeah. <clears throat> And but I feel like actually on that note, I've been trying to hunt down crepe myrtle branches. That's a I don't you guys have crepe myrtle down there, I'm sure. No, trees. what is it? No. What is a crepe so myrtle? It's a tree, but technically it's a bush. Okay. And they're everywhere down here, and the wood is very hard. What's it look like? Uh while you look for the picture. I'll look that up. I will speaking of really hard, dense, beautiful trees. This show is also brought to you by the fine people of the Pacific Northwest, the Gendra, the PSP, the Puget Sound Pythons. Let's see if I can find a close up of like the wood. Yeah, there we go. Nobody knows coniferous trees better than the Puget Sound Pythons. I think you probably do have these down here. You just don't realize that's what they are. Yeah, Billy Jenkins says I have to have them. A lot of people get them uh, for you know landscaping and stuff like that. So okay. Oh look, and Stefani's in the chat, and he's talking he about hypomolendorphide. No, I have not seen that. And if I have, I need to get flicked in the head because that sounds fantastic. We're gonna have to Google that next. Thanks, Mike. So my parents have a 20-year-old tree in their yard that was there not long after their house got built, and that thing has gotten huge, and so they've decided that because it's covering so much of the grass and stuff on that side of the house, nothing's growing, so they're going to cut it down. So I got excited because that wood, like I said, is very hard, and it works. Like Once it's dried out and it's um, no longer green, Like that stuff is, is pretty damn sturdy. Uh, so I went and we cut off, like, the, imagine this tree, but it's, like, twice the size. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can see my mouse or not. Yeah, we can but see. But, like, there's sort of three sections similar to this right here. We just cut off one of these and let the, you know, the freaking 30 feet of that fall. And then I went and took and cut all these little forks and stuff that were in some of these thicker branches uh, and cut them into into these sections, and I cut little straight pieces too. And what I think I'm gonna, well, what I'm planning to try to do is those manzanita perches that I get off eBay that have the little wing nut and washers. Right. I'm right. gonna try to make those out of these crepe myrtle branches. Oh, excellent. See, uh, I took apart. I don't think one I of, have that by one. me, man. I don't know, dude. It's. I really, I don't think I have that by me. I think that's. I more actually really like them. They're. 
they're really neat. Um, they're just, you know, they're, they're, I don't think they're not native for sure, but people plant them everywhere down here. And so I'm like been waiting, like look, Google and when people trim their crepe myrtle trees every year, and it usually looks like it's spring. So I've been like waiting for them to come trim the ones outside the building at work and like steal all the branches and take them home. And... Yeah, I, dude, I don't have anything like that by me. Maybe, maybe north of me, maybe up by Jenkins area, but definitely not by me. Yeah, I don't know. Because like I, I would know if it was flowering like that. You know, their bark is really like paper thin. Let's see if you can get out of here. Is the is the see? Look at that. Hold on a second. Can you zoom in on that tree right there? This one that I'm on. Yeah, the one that you're on. Can you zoom in on that? Um, I, don't, I don't know what happens. What is this button? What does that even do? What? Because see, I have a tree that's right behind me that looks very similar to that, but it, it's I've never seen it bloom ever. So if they have those bright red and pink flowers, then it is not what's behind me. I think they've they've got different colors because there's different varieties. But... Interesting, interesting. <clears throat> Da-dum. There he Da-dum. is. So, anyways, I'm gonna see how that works out. I gotta figure out how I'm gonna sort of cure them and dry them and stuff like that, and, and make them yeah. work. But if that's the case, and if it does work out, well, then I'll probably end up starting to sell some because they got an entire other tree they still have to cut down. And uh, nice, I'm gonna nice. Go through and that'll be cool, man. That'll be cool. <clears throat> Put them the together. um, I'm actually uh, probably this weekend. There's a park by me that's got a ton of pine trees. So I'm going to go and just steal a bunch of needles and some leaf litter and pine cones so I can dry them out and use them for some of the montane rattlesnakes. And I got this idea for like the pine and the coniferous action from our guest tonight, Mr. Cody Bartolini. Cody twice if you're in Milwaukee. He muted himself. Am, am I am I am I muted? No, no, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're in. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I was uh, muted. I was just waiting for you guys to be done. That was a, that was a perfect segue. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so what's up, Cody, man? Oh man, just uh, a lot. Always a lot. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, I I I tuned in right when I heard you talking about pine needles and, and pine cones and stuff and. Uh, you know, we uh, obviously you've, you've been uh, to our place and, and know that we're in oak pine forest, kind of like sand hills and stuff. So we have uh, no shortage of, of pine needles. But, uh, you know, what my, my thing is, I, I would like to be able to try to collect them more clean than us raping them up because we get a lot of other stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, spreading out some sort of net levitated off the ground just a little yeah, bit. To air catch catch. Those pine yeah, yeah. So you can get mm -hmm. some clean ones in there, you know, for uh, also because, you know, for walkways and uh, and planters and stuff just around property, instead of us using, you know, cypress mulch or, or whatever for a decorative effect, you know, a lot of, a lot of garden things are kind of, um, you know, you'll see when you go, when you're on like the uh, turnpike and you stop at one of those gas stations, you know, you see them using uh, pine needles instead of mulch in, in their planters and stuff. And it seems to be like kind of a renewable 
you know, less impactful way to, to dress things up, you know. So instead of us using mulch for, you know, decorative things around the property too, it's like we have so many pine trees. If we could just clean up those needles a little bit, we could make, you know, we could just repurpose that you know, for those things. And, uh, you know, cause you could go buy bales of clean stuff, you know, but you got to pay for that. We're like, we got pine trees everywhere. So yeah, we yeah. can just figure out how to do it. It would be good. Awesome. Yeah. Kevin said crepe myrtles don't do great in South Florida, which is surprising because they, they freaking love it here. Well, there you go. That answers why I haven't seen I it. Know. Why I didn't know what it was. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, I got a whole like, box of those little perches I I cut, so I'm anxious to see if I can make them make them work. Yeah, I um I got the idea for the needles and pine cones and stuff from Cody's uh, prey sign enclosure, and he had some little uh, dare I say sapling, you know, sapling evergreen sprouts coming out and pine needles, and I saw you had he had some uh, uh, oak limbs that he cut that had some lichens on them and stuff i'm like man that's great i just i don't know if it's going to do well in my room but i figure if anything i'll try and then i can always try and make fake stuff because now the world is our oyster in terms of making fake decor so why not yeah you know um we're lucky being where we are because there are people that would pay good money just to have the branches that fall off the trees naturally around here because the lichen that's on them, you know, you can, oh, yeah. the, the, that price high enclosure, you know, we, we did the, the, the rock work and all the painting and the, the fake lichen and stuff on it that turned out pretty realistic, took a lot of time and unhealthy amounts of uh, hours staring at Google images of lichen and, and mon on and montane pond, uh, pine forest and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, so so you can make, you know, painted lichen look real, but it, it takes a lot of time. It's, doesn't, it's not a, you know, substitute for the real thing because it's really hard, you know, because if you look at lichen regularly, right, it's like, you know, it's just abstract and it's all kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's imperfectly perfect. And when you're trying to do that as somebody who has OCD tendencies, you're, you're overthinking how the lichen looks and you're like, how do I make it look natural? How do I make it look natural? And then you make it look unnatural because you're trying too hard. And, you know, it takes a lot of like letting go to just kind of go with the paint and just kind of just like, you know, whatever happens, happens and then ends up making it look a lot more natural because of that when we did the i mean you've seen that price guy in poetry in, in person and the lichen painted on that and you know we used acrylic paints uh you know and, and tried to you know pick you know realistic looking lichen colors and then cut little um you know, sponges to lichen shapes and then just dab them a little <laughs> bit and then and then dab them on the rock and then you just kind of you know feel it out from there and you're like okay i kind of like that but then the next one can't look anything like the other one you know they have to look kind of uniform like you're finding on the same because you know you've been to like the habitat and stuff you'll see like oh, yeah. there's a big old blotch of lichen and then there's like a bunch of sporadic like uh, spatters of lichen all around it and you know and it makes it look totally natural if you do too many of the same looking shapes it looks unnatural so you have to kind of you know, Pia and I were, were working on that enclosure with the painting together where she would do some lichen and then I would do it, you know, we would take turns rotating who's good because there was a lot to do on there. And that way it, it didn't look too much, it didn't look too similar because two different people with two different kind of like perceptions on how they think it should look good. So it makes it more natural looking, but it's hard. It's a, you know, like Ari, uh, uh, Flagel at uh, Reptilandia, you know, he's done so many of those, in, well, like, um, like all the enclosures there, you know, all the rock work and cement work and 
carving, you know, fake trees out of cement and painting them and stuff. And it's a real art form to do it, to make it look like nature. It's tough. Oh yeah. Well, I was going to ask you on that price on enclosure. So I'm going to pull some pictures up in a little bit, but did you, I was going to ask, did you guys like spray foam in the rock walls and then carve them? Or did you do like paneled foam and adhere it inside? So we did, um, we did panel foam and adhered it inside. I made a, I made a little Instagram reel on my, uh, on my personal, um, Instagram that oh, okay. uh, just, just, just has a quick, like kind of start, uh, time-lapse thing. End. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I, um, I was going to put the, cause I have a lot of pictures and videos of the process of when we did it. And I just been meaning to splice it together. I was going to put it on our Patreon, you know, or, or, uh, uh, you know, maybe make a little mini clip or something on that for the, for the Instagram or whatever. But basically, uh, you know, to, to start it off, we took the, the half inch, um, uh, purple foam or pink foam that you get at a home depot insulation foam you know right right and and, and cut it to the size of the the exoterra that we were using for that particular build and it was uh an 18 by 2 by 36 i, I got those measurements all back but we'll go 36 by 18 by 24 high okay what was was is maybe a little bit more understandable than what i said but um, and then I, you, 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 um, start it maybe three or four inches, uh, you know, from the bottom. So that way you can put your false bottom, your, your substrate mix, you know, whatever you end up using ABG or something or something else. And, uh, cause even for those like pine forest habitats or even desert habitats, I think, you know, um, misting and stuff for the plants at the very least, you know, you got to do it. So having somewhere for that water to go and easily drained out, you know, it's a, th these ones are internal systems. So there's no like bulkhead where the water could go out. So basically I would do um, uh, a little PVC pipe, half inch PVC pipe, cut it to three or four inches, you know, put it there. I don't silicone it there. I just put it there, put the false bottom. So your clay pebbles, um, you know, are, around it that'll hold it in place. Then you put your substrate mixture around that, that holds it in place a little bit more. And then I would put uh, a little bit of saran wrap, ball it up into a ball and stick it into the PVC pipe so the dirt doesn't go in. And then I'll just put, you know, a piece of cork over that or a rock or something to just to hide that. So whenever you need to use it, you just pull off the cover, you know, put a little hose in there and siphon it out. And um, the, uh, uh, so you, so you'd want to have like that three or four inches gap. So you, you, you know, you have all that. So then, um, you know, we measured the purple foam, uh, silicone that cut it, cut it for the three sides, you know, the sides in the back and let that cure. And then what we would do was, um, Pia was able to get a bunch of, uh, styrofoam boxes from work that they, you know, they get supplies, lab supplies and stuff like that. And they throw out the foam. And so she just bring the boxes back and um, we have these hot wire cutting tools that we get from the hot wire foam factory. And nice. you could, you, you could, uh, you know, just the, the website I think is hotwirefoamfactory.com and they have, uh, you know, pretty much everything you need there to, to make awesome, you know, synthetic rocks. And they have a, what's called a um, exterior foam coat. It's basically like their version of, you know, cement designed to adhere to foam better than, you know, the standard cement that, you know, or And hot mortar. wire makes that? Hot wire makes that, yeah. Okay. It's, 
there, there'll be a link that you can navigate to. to is it kind of like dry lock? Yeah, kind of like that, but they, it's their own special thing that they make in-house that's, uh, you know, it, it adheres to the foam to where when it cures, then you have less cracking and flaking or no cracking and flaking, but, you know, a lot of the other stuff, you have to apply multiple coats, keep going back and, and touching it up where stuff will fall off or, or whatnot. So this this stuff seems to be pretty good. That's I, I've never used the dry lock. I've never done any, like, the, the, I guess, the traditional ways of doing it. Because when we, when we started doing it, I learned about um, the hot wire foam factory, you know, before we started sculpting those rocks and making rocks. And, and I actually learned about that through um, a person who has a YouTube channel. It's called Lizard Landscapes. And um, Interesting the guy they're really good tutorials um you know he he talks about the hot wire foam factory talks about the cutting tools and that's where we actually learned about that and he does you know the setups for you know like a bearded dragon setup or a leopard gecko setup but the, the the principles can be scaled up you know and and they're really well done videos and he really explains like into detail how it all works and then you know attaches the links to the hot wire foam factory and whatnot and, and that guy's youtube channel i don't know if he's consistently posting anymore but the videos are still up and that's lizard landscapes um and uh yeah i've learned a whole lot just from just from watching that but that exterior foam coat's really really nice you can mix it watery or thick you know for like an intricate thing like the pricey i build there was a lot of nooks and crannies and stuff that if you uh, that were really close together that if you didn't mix it a little bit wet that you wouldn't be able to drip that that cement stuff um you know into the cracks uh so and then you'd have to do a couple layers of that and let it fully cure over 24 hours or so and then do it again and then do your touch-ups and then you know uh, go into painting and stuff but like uh, each one of the, each one of those uh, in that price i exhibit um each one of those little um layers of rock and everything is uh you know just an individually sculpted piece of foam and then what we would do is we would just we would just piece them in there you know there was we had the end in mind of we wanted the animal to be able to um use it like a pricey eye would use it you know be able to wedge itself down in, in the crevices but be able to bask at different points of where they you know uh, on the rocks and um, you know, usability plus like exhibition quality sure, and, sure. and uh, not, not just make it pretty for us to look at, but, you know, usable for the animal, let them do natural behaviors and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so each, each little, um, rock slate that we carve, you go, okay, I, I like this one right here. And then you, we would use a, a lot, it's called Loctite power grab. And um, we would just do a little bead along the backside of the foam and just squish that on that backboard of the, you know, that the purple foam first. That, you know, that, that way, if you ever needed to redo it or whatever, it's you could just, you know, pop off the back. So yeah. like, it's all sealed together now. But it's if you had to break it down for whatever reason, start again or, so, you know, something that you just didn't like, you could it's it's uh, you know, you could redo it. It would be a, it would be. Um, a challenge but it was yeah more well, easily that, yeah more it would be a challenge in just the regards that you have to break it up and pop it off but it just silica and so yeah, it, it's yeah easier done than than some other stuff but then you would just kind of like carve it how you like it how you think it works and then you basically you know it's like a puzzle you know that, that you are kind of creating along the way making basking sites and stuff and then you just gotta 
figure out what you're going to put in there and what kind of colors the rocks you want to you want to make you know like is it going to be um you know a desert setup is it going to be something that a more a tropical species is going to go in where maybe some grayish rocks are going to look nicer versus reddish rocks like i want to we've got a pair of uh tanaha altis um speckled rattlesnakes you know the, the infamous white specks and yeah. um I, I i'm really excited to create they're they're young they're but they're yearlings and um i'm really excited to put them into a nice display where we can uh, you know do the the rocks white and and spray them yeah, like basically what we would do yeah do marble them to look like the animal yeah so what we yeah. how you do that is you would just you know you do the rock work and then what we we call the poor man's paint gun um you put your acrylic paints with some water so we do white and then shake it up and then just spray the rocks with that and then you got your white base and then you just put black uh acrylic paint in another bottle shake it up and that spray that spray gun just a hand sprayer is going to give you that speckling that's just going to look like you know the granite rocks and really it's it, i bet it's going to look so good um and uh with those animals in there they're just gonna disappear amongst it so it, it it's fun creating the environments um you know for the animals uh, to just disappear right in front of your eyes oh yeah and uh richard schubert saying do not use hot wire on urethane foam and just use it for styrofoam uh and people ask you know why what's the difference between urethane urethane is basically spray foam and if you use a hot wire you're making cyanide gas so don't do that boys and girls uh richard says not good urethane polyurethane gorilla glue most all expanding foam is bad juju for hot wire cutting so there you have it and yeah, for those of you who are feeling bougie, uh, Mike Stefani says, Zupoxy for the win. So, <laughs> yeah, I wondered how you guys got that, that consistent color of like rock and stuff on those foam backgrounds. Now that makes sense. I thought maybe you guys had like hand painted them that way, but <clears throat> it, it was, um, yeah, it was kind of um, a multi, you know, because you could kind of change the color and look as, as you, um, Mm -hmm. as you like it or don't like it you know it was like oh that's a little too light let's add a little bit more black to the gray oh that's a little bit too much you know and then what was ended up happening was uh the gray and the black uh we sprayed it pretty thick and it would um pool the black would pool in little um um um, divots in the rocks that we had that were just like you know like natural rock and it sat there for a minute and then you take a paper towel and you would just stick it in the water and it, the, the paper towel would just absorb it. And then what was left was this kind of black. Um, it, it, it looked very natural. It looked like if you were out in the wild and you just saw like, you know, divots in a cave or whatever that, you know, just the, the sediment and stuff kind of pooled in there. Yeah. It looked very, very natural, but clean, you know, and next time you guys are out here, you know, just you, you pay attention to that now and you'll, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that yeah. Thing. you know, it was an unplanned thing when we were painting. It's like, oh, man, we're, I'm going to screw that up. There's like so much black puddling in the in these corners. And I'm like, I, when I did the little paper towel trick, I was like, oh, you know what? That black looks pretty good there. I'm just going to leave that because that ended up looking more natural. So like as you're going, you just you got to kind of feel it out along the way and kind of, you know, it really, every single time I do one, it's like, I, I'm, there's, there's things that you really like about whatever build you do. And then there's things that you're like, man, I wish I went to done that, you know, cause um, you know, some of these things are permanent once you, when, once oh, yeah. you 
<laughs> that's what i learned with the dart frog enclosures after doing foam backgrounds on some of those was like the first one i was like yeah i'm not very happy with that because you don't realize how much that spray foam expands oh yeah you have to do it multiple times to really have a better grasp of like okay when i do it in this spot it's going to expand this much i can expect to trim off you know 15 percent, 20 percent, whatever the first time I did it, I used entirely too much, and I was like, "What the hell?" And ended up trimming <laughs> it, and it got better. But like, it's that first time, and I think it's going to be for anybody. It's going to be a little, little rough, and it's going to be, you know, it's trial and error. It's, it takes practice, I think. Yeah, and uh, oh, it's, it's yeah. funny was saying, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, use dry brushes too. Like when stuff's still wet, use a dry brush to like give the texturing. And like that stuff always looked great. I know Marcus used epoxy for a lot of his enclosures and he would do the dry brushing thing. And then my buddy Chris was telling me today um, that I guess what you do is if you have the dense, the pink foam or the blue foam, the insulation foam, you take uh, tin foil and you roll up tin foil either in a ball or in like a, like a, like a hot dog shape and you make it real hard and dense. And then you press the tin foil, the crinkled tin foil into the foam before you dry lock it or zoopoxy or whatever. And uh, he said that came out really cool looking like actual, like wavy cuts in the rocks. So I thought you that could was probably really... take a decent sized chunk of like lava rock too, and do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something, something like that, like lava rock, porous rock. Yeah. Hell yeah. So Oh man, we jumped into that quick, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> Diving headfirst, love it. So um, for those some, of you, at some point when I'm not lazy, I will, I will take the time to, to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, you you've done it before. You gotta, you just gotta, <clears throat> you know what it is? Is it's you gotta start, and then once you start, you'll finish. You know what I mean? I don't know that I will. Yeah, anything, my, uh, my problem is getting it started. Like I anything like the books, like I'll start a book and it'll take me like six months to finish a pretty small book because I'll read, you know, 20 pages a month. And... Yeah. The, yeah. Mo the more, the more that you do, the obviously the more comfortable you get, the, the more you kind of know how the next one's going to go or things that didn't go well on, on a last build, you're going to, you know, avoid those on the next one. And, you know, I could move through them a little bit faster. Now I know my, my trigger finger on the foam gun when you're doing the actual foam, mm -hmm. you know, the great stuff, you know, foam, like to be very light on the finger, you know, because uh, you know, when I first started doing them, it just like, it comes out so fast. And then, you know, now they have the guns that are a little bit more controllable that, that doesn't keep going after you, you pull you put your finger off the trigger, but, but a lot of them still do. And just going, cause that foam, like you said, really does expand a lot more than you think, you know, and mm -hmm. you put too much in one area and then just like it, it I, I've, I've had it to where with, uh, you know, zoom at enclosures, I put so much foam on it, uh, that I had foam pushing through the, um, silicone coming out the back and you're doing little, little oh, ghosts, you know, looking like little ghost wavy things coming out the back, you know, <laughs> when they, when they dry and, um, it ended up being fine. It didn't end up blowing out the glass and stuff, but I definitely know people who have put too much foam in there. And then once it cures, if it's in a smaller tank or whatnot, that it busts the glass in it, you know, so you gotta be really, you know, the more you do, the more you, you kind of know, okay, this is how much foam I need to put in here. And this is how hard I have to pull the trigger to be able to, you know, get the right amount of foam to come out. And, um, yeah, it just takes practice. You know, we, we, what we're going to end up with the new exhibit building that's, uh, the, that's going up when we do the enclosures, you know, it's going to be a, a lot of that stuff and we're going to, we're going to have to do 
multiple enclosures at the same time because doing one at a time it just takes so long for each process for the curing process the carving process uh you know and then going back and forth like adding different things or uh you know it definitely uh takes a lot of time and if you do it multiple enclosures at once you know obviously it takes a lot more time so you got to just um you know for us it's going to be just go for it and not be sitting I'm not as much of a perfectionist about it anymore as, as I was because I've learned that even when it when you do it, what you think is bad in your mind ends up looking yeah. pretty good and everybody else thinks it looks really good because I'm always like, man, this really lo- this this looks like shit and everything. Well, it's because you like, know oh, you know the imperfections, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you you see where you made a mistake when in actuality there is no real mistakes and it's going to look good regardless. You know? Happy accidents. Yeah, happy accidents, right? Yeah, Man, like the little black puddles were uh, were happy accidents, and, and I was uh, I was stoked of those. You know, <laughs> it's funny, man. The uh, this conversation's booming with the group chat. Man, we got some great guys and gals in there chatting up about dry lock and cocoa fiber, and uh, this is great. This this is isopods, and man, this is I love this show. Like it uh, wasn't that I didn't enjoy doing it with the dart frogs. It was just one of those things for like waiting for it to dry and then having to carve it. And then carving too much than what I had initially needed to, and then coating it all with silicone, and then dusting it all with the eco earth, and just the whole process. I'm like this, and then you got to wait wait a month for plants to really root and take off and get anything out of their system that they had. And I'm just like, I just want to, I just want to get the frogs in there and and be done. Uh, my uh the thing that drives me nuts is like you said uh you know taking too much foam off like where i'll go uh just a little bit more and i think i'll have the look that i want and then i'm like oh no i took off too much and i can't put it back you know it's like uh, i'm gonna yeah. just have to live with my decision um well i was always told to if you're gonna do spray foam for the first time and you know you're gonna use at least one maybe two canisters whatever you want to think in your mind you think you're gonna need right buy another one Get a piece of cardboard, right? Take a Sharpie marker, measure out the size of your back glass or whatever, draw it on the cardboard in your yard or in the street, and then test, you know, practice your spray foam shooting on the cardboard because you just throw it away, you know? And that way you're not, you, you kind of like, uh, you're doing a little, a little warm up before you actually use it on the glass or the, or the PVC or what have you. So. No, that's a good. That's a good pro tip. Yeah, yeah. Or 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 just like you have your extra can just in case you use too much. But at least at least figure out how much how 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 much foam is going to come out when you initially do it. Especially if it's the first time that you're doing it, because like it just it it comes out so fast. And if if you don't have a really strong game plan of you know exactly where you want to put that foam, if you kind of just think you know where you want to do it. when that foam comes out, you just it, it, you go into panic mode, and you're just like, "Oh God, oh God!" You know, I got to use this yeah. can now. I can't just let it sit, or else it's going to clog up the hose. I got to you got to full sand when you do it. So you so really make sure you got that plan in place. At least have a general idea of where you want to go with it. And uh, you yeah, know. yeah, and you're no. going to make mistakes. You're just going to make mistakes, and then you're just going to learn from them. And um, you know that that's it. They're, they're non-fatal mistakes. So you know, failing yeah. forward. Yeah, failing for that's good. Mike Gillen uh, is saying for desert setups, the spray foam, grout, and dry brush has worked really well for him. Um, I can say I've used the dense styrofoam and dry brush and grout and to make some like rock escarpment type stuff for girdle tails. 
And I'm personally not going to do grout anymore because I felt like, although the grout gave great texture and it was the right colors and it just looked really good, it made it so heavy. It was just so damn heavy. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that you're gonna you're gonna see with the Hot Wire Foam Factory's um, exterior foam coat. Not a sponsor, but they could be if they chose to be. Um, and and we would certainly love them to sponsor us. Um, but uh, yeah, it may. It, I mean, there's still going to be some weight to it, but mm -hmm. just this big blast tank or whatever. I think you could probably do pretty good if you did it in like a a, a herb cage, like a Doug Bar herb cage. I don't know if they if they're calling them that anymore, but, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, JPM reptilia yeah. that, uh, is, uh, is a uh, distributor for Doug bars enclosures. And they're really good. We use a lot of them. That's where our, our, our custom Mamba displays, you know, uh, were built from Doug and, and them. And, uh, you know, I, I think that you could do those, um, those foam structures and everything and, and all those, and those would be a nice light enclosure to, to use for that. But uh, the exterior foam coat is, is like far, far, far lighter than any of that other stuff and seems to be a lot more durable and easier to clean you when we're spraying mm -hmm. it off and, and, you know, scrubbing it out. And that's, that's another big thing there, too, you know, when you do those kind of setups, make sure you don't put a diseased animal in there because, you know, sanitizing that after, you know, something goes in there that oh, yeah. has something is a nightmare, yeah. you know, something like cryptosporidium it, it, it may be better to just you know bust out all the old stuff and a freaking it. playground for crypto yeah yeah so it's one of those things to consider you know as you're doing this is like uh how are you building it to, you know to clean it and you know you may have to come to terms with if something gets it and you actually you know are some of the few that test and look for those things that uh you know it's like hey are you willing to destroy all your hard work if something goes in there or are you just going to sanitize reuse and hope for the best um you know so but they're, they're gorgeous nonetheless you know like we're we're going to do it and you know no doubt we've seen diseased animals in the past and we'll see diseased animals in the future but hopefully we'll we'll catch them in quarantine before they go into something like that but stuff slips through the cracks all the time you know and animals end up uh testing you know they're getting something after fact you learn that, that that they actually had it but they were testing you know false false negatives and and whatnot and um you know it just it just happens zoos deal with it you know more more than you would think you know because all these animals have these diseases that date back millions of years that are designed to go to those animals and and all these zoos quarantine and stuff and you know, they, I know of a few zoos right now that are dealing with a couple different things, paramyxovirus, cryptosporidium, and, you know, and they have very strong quarantine procedures in place with on-site veterinarian staff. And, you know, so it's like, it doesn't, doesn't mean that somebody is like a bad keeper or something that, that ends up getting something, but it, it, it happens. And, you know, what do these, what do these zoos do with these million dollar rockscape zoo exhibits? You know, you oh, can't man. just hit tear everything down and start over again you just have to sanitize and leave empty and, and hope for the best but that becomes the problem with your bioactive setups and stuff is if you get mites or or, or you know like that, that and you have isopods in there you know if you're going to use pregenomite in there probably going to kill your isopod colony and that's just going to be the you know the lesser of two evils i guess of breaking down the entire thing taking out all your plants and and whatever the isopods may not die. They might not all die. That stuff's made for 
for, for mites and picks, but it is Promethrin. So and they are a bug or a prestation or something, whatever they are, you know. <laughs> what are they? They're yeah. something. Lame crabs. Yeah. Brain bugs. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Well, the old really poly. Billy Jenkins says that I condone playing in the street. That I do, Billy Jenkins. That I do. After the streetlights have come on. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Brent, you got to shout out to Brendan Meyer, too, because he just did a Baird's enclosure. and uh, Yeah. That thing looked sharp. That's and, another, uh, like, those and corns would be a fun one to, to do that with. Like I know, like Edisto Serpentarium, and I've seen some other zoos and stuff. They do like an old barn sort of. Yeah, I was gonna say, didn't you say you were gonna do like a a big three foot, uh, not big three foot, but a three foot enclosure for corns or rat snakes with like the rusty farm equipment and stuff? Eventually, I don't know when that'll when that'll happen. It'd be cool to do, but just get that in the living room, man. Where those where those you know uh, Renatomea used to be. Just put a nice three three foot black box in there. With like the hay from the barn and you like forget, I'm, some I'm, like I'm rusty not tools. In charge of, of what's allowed outside of my room, so. I know, I know. It's art by committee in that 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 aspect. Just keep letting her play with you know the the rhinos and she'll I, come around. No, I feel like if I was going to do that, I'd have a better shot of of getting a rhino display out out than than anything else. Nice, nice. But the rhinos would be perfect for it. Yeah. We're talking rhino vipers or rhino rat snakes? No, rhino rat snakes. Yeah, rhino rat snakes. Yeah, I mean, that'd be awesome. Get some big, big leafed, um, variegated, like big green wide suckers and then put like a little Buddha statue in there and make it look like all creeper vine. And oh, that'd be cool, man. Mark Gravia, have it crawl up the back. Yeah. Be the way to do it. I like that look that you guys are talking about that you see, you'll see at zoos and places of the old, you know, rustic barn with farm equipment in there for mm-hmm. your corn snake and your rat snakes. Throw yeah. a good old timber rattlesnake in there too for good measure. And sure. but, uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool setup. You know, we may, we may do something like that on the, on the new building just, just because and I, you know, I know it's a, a look and it's out there, but it's not super prevalent and it's fun. And for the general public around here, you know, that, we're in we're in Melrose, Florida, so we're we're outside of Gainesville, but we're still in the country. There's quite a bit of country folk here, so they could, uh, you know, they, they would uh, they could level with that. Yeah, they may even donate some of their rusty equipment. And uh, oh yeah, since we have Cody here and he is a Florida boy, we should ask him if he believes. That's what I was just about to say. Is that he said Timber? Ask Cody. Yeah. Oh no, the, the ones the ones here in in Florida are a tricky data. So all day long, you know, it's it's you know, it's they're 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 can breaks as far as I'm concerned. Yes. It's like I'm wearing like, the shirt right now. We believe, it, 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 you know, it's pretty much like you know, why we, you know, all us condo nerds are are still calling them condros, even though that's been far removed. You just don't want to let it go, regard regardless of what science or whatever says. And maybe ignorant and stuff. Bring it back. Yeah, the, it should be. The shirt it on? should be. I do. I don't, Show the I shirt. I've seen that shirt. I would like that shirt. No, no, not that shirt. Oh, the, the, let me let me go back to the side. Yeah, I'm 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 doing some uh, some late night work, so that's uh so that's I've got it on. You'll have to post the picture, but stand yeah. up, boy. Show Hold that on. shirt off. Hold on. Yeah, that's the shirt that I saw on uh, on your story. Somebody's yes, story. yes. 
Is Justin going to flash us? Yes, he is. <laughs> it says, I, I want to believe. Take that hoodie off, Justin. And it has a silhouette of a cane break. And it says, Atricodatus on top. Atricodatus. Tricodatus, Tricodatus. Potato, um, no, but I mean, you, you could. You there could, it is. Yeah, that's a cool I shirt. I to believe. I believe. I don't want to believe. I believe. I believe. Um, yeah, I mean, if you sat me down or anybody that's that's really, you know, a believer in, you know, the, the cane breaks versus the, the, the actual northern timbers and stuff, you'd all day long you go, cane break, cane break, timber, cane break, even though it's all timber now, you know, it's just like they're they're clearly cane breaks in Florida. And, you know, out, out, out uh, west of Texas, still cane breaks, you know, until, until you start going up to where they actually start looking like timbers, that's when I start, you know, start, you know considering them timbers. You well, know, that's, you that's guys the know. thing is, like, you don't see where they start to sort of transition – like you would see with like yellow rats to black rats as you go upstate in South Carolina, like they do progressively seem to get darker. Yeah. I've never yeah. seen a cane break that kind of looked like a timber or a timber that kind of no. looked like a cane break. It was like, it's very clearly either a cane break or a timber. Yeah. Yeah. So, We're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. They never left. Damn it. Yeah, and I'm sorry, man. Like, I, I am not a taxonomist, but if you can have Lepidus Lepidus and Lepidus Clobri, like, there's no reason why you can't have Herida or um, Herid, is it Heridus, excuse me, Horridus Horridus and Horridus yeah. Etricodatus. Yeah, I say Horridus. That's, that's my fake. preferred. <laughs> that's my preferred pronunciation of it. The Trichidatus, I think. Either Trichidatus with a hard A or Trichidatus like a, with a hard A, but uh, it just depends on whatever comes out of my mouth, you know, however it comes out. A Trichidatus is a little easier for me to say, I guess. I'm waiting for Scott to chime in and say, Atricodatus. Is Nipper, Nipper doesn't, Nipper's not a believer, is he? No, he is not a believer. Nip, oh. You know what? He, he is a, they're the same animal on paper. But they, there is a regional phenotype and or race. So that's that's his stance. Well, it's like we could get in. I mean, this is a, a real slippery slope. You know, the, the both Reopsis, the, the two-line forest pit vipers, the yes. special forest pit vipers, and so on. That whole genus, you know, recently or semi-recently got, you know, uh, lumped in with uh, – or, or they're both ROPs now. They, yeah, they, it's ridiculous. They, they, and, you know, when I, when I think of – both rops, I think of these heavy-bodied, um, non-prehensile-tailed lambshead vipers. Huge, you know, some of some <laughs> of them not so big, but but they have a general body type, look, blah blah blah. Uh, both reopsis, you know, it, they, they're they're laterally compressed. They're like a Cook's tree boa, you know, Amazon tree boa, um, prehensile tail, very lean, you know, compared to like a both rops or a both reacus um and and just you know just their physical features it's you know regardless of genetics or dna and stuff like just just their their physiology is, is you know much different than a both a both ops. you could tell that they're related you know or i mean like they are the genus now so i guess more than related they are that according to some people but you know um a lot of our tags uh you know i've, I've got some display tags that say both rops taniatus and then our original ID tags that have our QR numbers with the records on them are still both Reopsis 
um, you know, because I haven't reprinted it. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's what they are. And um, uh, so some other scientist needs to go back there and challenge that or taxonomist and, and put them back in there because uh, it would make a lot of people happy. Yeah, that's like uh, that's like me personally with jumping vipers. You know, it, the new name is Metlapilcolatus, which I actually had to type out so that I could say it correctly. That, that's a horrible name. I'm sure that they deserve to have a different nomenclature, but Metlapilcolatus is oh, makes makes it cultless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's not. There's no X like. You see what I'm saying? Like it, it's a, just a, I just think it's a bad word. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Cause, cause is a, a totally different one. That's more. Yeah. Opriacus. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're thinking of the the other the other viper that's more south. Sorry, but no. But these these um, what was the it was atropoides? No, what was atropoides? Atropoides. That's right. Yeah. Like that was that that that's a fine name. That's a good name, but it was yeah atropoides uh, mexicana. You know. Yeah. Mex yeah. Or mexicanus. I don't know if it was mexicana or mexicanus. Yeah, I think I think it's Mexicanos, yeah. Oh. You know, I got one of those. I had a I had a Mexicanos that I got from the San Antonio Venomous Reptile Show in 2006 that was tied to uh uh well it wasn't tied to IHS there, but IHS was being held in San Antonio in 06 and the San Antonio Venomous Show was there too. And I, I remember um I, I picked up um I picked up a Mexicanus from uh, from Randall Berry for two hundred bucks when he was uh, still working at <laughs> uh oklahoma city zoo and um you know the old poor man's uh, poor man's bushmaster and and that was a good snake <laughs> man just just a just a big old head and just you know big stocky little three foot you know bushmaster little poor man's bushmaster it's so yeah. so cool and and um you know you don't really see them um around too much anymore occasionally you know they're floating around from time to time we don't have one um i'd love to get them you know if, if uh, next time they become available um but uh but they're cool yeah very cool really cool how many ophriacus do you guys have now we have four i freaking love those things dude yeah so does Derek. i know <laughs> Derek's part of the reasons why i love them so much yeah we're probably <laughs> gonna Derek's still we have uh because you know as you guys know our um, our former team member, but still team member in spirit. And whenever he is around Derek Dykstra, um, he uh, he's um, going through the academy for Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to, you know, eventually be a an investigator that's going to be, you know, the one of the agents that come and, and inspect our facilities and and all of that. And it's it's good to get a good one, you know, who really understands reptiles in there oh, yeah. and his his family comes from a long line of law enforcement stuff so it's a perfect position you know perfect field for him to, to be in but when he took off the for the academy we ended up with uh, uh quite a few of his uh animals from his collection some cool little montane rattlesnakes some montane vipers you know we got a, a godman's viper the uh seraphidiodon uh, godman eye or godmany uh, it's a really, really cool little Guatemalan, you know, montane snake, and um, and and some other some other really neat stuff. Um, and uh, the uh, he, he he still has a couple of things, uh, but just kind of down downgraded his or downsized his collection for management. He's got, you know, 
Bushmaster or Bushmasters. I don't know if he's got more than one now or, or not, but he's got his Ophriacus. And I think he's got – I think he might have five, four, four or five for sure. And he's got some real nice ones. Ours are nice, but he's got – you know, some of his phenotypes are, are really uh, getting that really nice, uh, you know, uh, deep green color and that rich green color and stuff. So I oh, assume yeah. – I don't, I don't know what sexes that uh, we're working with. I raised them from babies from uh, – we got them in – uh, I remember you had them in like 2019. We had baby ones when I was there. Yeah, yeah, those are the wow. same ones, and uh, they were. Uh, I think we got them in 2018. So they're they're definitely ready to breed. I mean, they're a small snake. When we got them, they were really, really, really tiny, and they're still really tiny. You would you would think that it was a yearling snake of some other species, but um they're not a tremendously large animal and the babies are super tiny i remember when they were shipped to us um we had six of them we we have four now because two had died they they did all right but um you know there was they were they were fresh fresh born and um when we had them we had them sent to us from a serpentarium in texas and uh when they sent them they they put three to a container a little deli cup with a with an air plant in there for them to anchor to and three of these snakes were very comfortable on this air it was not a big airplane wow, either wow. Had, they had three of these snakes were very comfortable looking on this airplane and uh you know they were just i mean just tiny 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 little things they were they were eating you know pinky parts and we were doing reptilinks so we were doing the little lizard links the micro links and the frog links and and they and like they the were eating the baby them. squams then yeah. yeah, they're definitely, yeah, definitely smaller than baby squams. Whoa, wow. um, they're very Jeez. tiny snakes, very tiny snakes. And uh, so very sensitive. Uh, I'm, I'm really honestly thrilled that we ended up with four out of the six. Uh, you know, the, the, the two that had died were doing all right. But, you know, one of them ate and then, with the, you know, had, had died within that week. Um, and I don't, I don't know what happened there, but um you know sometimes things, it just goes that way man sometimes not every tomato makes it to the salad bar exactly <laughs> that's right exactly uh that's the price we pay for having so many you know so it's, it's it's bound to happen they were they were a donation to us too so that that also was um was nice too it didn't didn't sting so bad i mean it's it stung because of what they were but financially it was not um as big of a sting as if, if you were to, mm-hmm. to purchase them, you know, they're not, they're not a cheap animal. Yeah. Richard yeah. had asked about blue and Solaris too. I know it seems those used to be not easy to get. And then all of a sudden it seems like within the last handful of years, like I've seen them super well, cheap. I, like, I feel it like it comes to, price a ton. I feel like it also comes to the exporters knowing what people want. Or thinking they know what people want, because in the past we would get blues, you know, the quote-unquote Komodo, even though they're probably not from the actual island of Komodo, right. um, and then Wetter Island, which is the yellows, and mm-hmm. then just your regular Abalabras, and we'd get them all in the same bag. Just they would just throw them all in there together, and now it's like only blue, only yellow, and you're hard pressed to find a standard green one. I don't even see the the Waitars. Yeah. Available. It's been a couple of years, so I think I saw some blue and Solaris at I think the last Repticon that Jake and I went to. Uh, I'm gonna say they were like a hundred, hundred fifty bucks, like they were cheap. 
Well, I know Underground just had uh, someone was, I guess, moving around some of their collection stuff, and Underground was selling a adult Pooh Breeder pair that were hands down the biggest in Solaris I've ever seen. They, they were bigger than most standard Abelabras, and um, like 10 or 15 captive bred babies that were blue at a mom, straight up baby blue, smaller than a cigarette. And uh, they, I think they were selling for 300 each because they were captive. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's wild. That's, that's a really, that's a really good uh, price on those. I wish I would have saw that at that time because I would have <laughs> been all over those. We have, we have, um, we have two Insularis here. Um, we have a, a mustard green one that's really attractive, and as adult female, uh, real good size. And then we have um, a young. I think it's a. I think it's a male, just by eyeball and the tail. Um, you know, but it could. It could be. You know, it could be a female too. But uh, it's a. It's a blue one. It's a neonate. It was one of Derek Snakes. Um, who just just wanted to eat. You know, brown anoles and and lizards and stuff for a minute. But uh, now now I've got it. He's feeding on um, on 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 pinky mice, and it's not too stubborn of a feeder but it's a nice snake it's blue for sure it's not as blue as but it's still a neonate it may end up getting that rich blue you know they're kind of like a pale blue when they're when they're little neonates um you know and i guess it just uh it just depends on the individual um you know some of them are bluer than others but it's a it's an attractive snake i would definitely i'd love to get some more blue ones i'd love to i'd love to get the true yellow ones the female that we have is not what i would consider a true yellow she is like a mustard and that you know i don't know if she's a hybrid with uh with elba labris because um we were looking at uh pictures of, of hybrids between elba labris and and in solaris and it looked the the resulting animal may have just been that picture but it looked just like the female that we had that's that mustard green so yeah. um I don't know for sure. I know that we have a, the, you know, the one that we have is very attractive and, you know, she's a great display animal. Um, I would just breed her with an Insularis. Yeah, obviously I'm not, I'm not going to do trashy hybrid stuff with those snakes, but uh, you know, I, I would, I would represent it with, uh, you know, it, it's supposed to be Insularis, but I saw a picture of a hybrid that looks similar, you know, try to pair it with, I mean, I don't know if this ends up being a male blue, they breed they're both in solaris i don't know what that would yeah. end up looking like but you know we, you know we have relationships with you know the few venom labs in the country that you know may need those animals for uh, not not because of a hybrid potential or whatever but just in solaris so you know we would just send them to them and not thank you not be worried about what's that oh mike stefani was dipping out just saying thanks Oh, um, yeah, I mean, just, just let them know to the best of my you know knowledge that this is what it is, but that way we're not, you know, misrepresenting the animals because I'm sure at some point we'll breed this female because she's so big and beautiful. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it would be, and it's fun. It's fun to see babies and stuff. But, yeah, it'd be a uh, shame not to. Yeah, I mean, to, yeah. To, 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 to friends that, you know, are, are, are capable to keep these permitted or, you know, other you know pro- professional private people that that we know throughout the u.s that we could vouch for sending stuff to venom labs or zoos is where the offspring would would end up going but uh, but i would love to i'd love to have an exhibit with the blue this mustard female 
um, and and a, the, the true banana yellow in Solaris, and do you know maybe just do all females in there so they're not all bringing yeah. all the color. I'd like to I'd like to keep those colors pure, and then if we decide to breed them, you know, move move the female to the males enclosure, vice you know, vice versa, move them around to isolated pair of that, but just so we could give the public, you know, because they're beautiful. I mean, to see blue, yellow, green, um, and uh, and that mustard all together with with the same snake, just like. I'd like to do a nice squamager, or I guess squamagera now, uh, exhibit with some really choice examples of the species. I'd most likely get them from Alexander, England, and yeah, get I mean, a who good... Else? Yeah, <laughs> who else are you going to yeah, get them from? Come that on. That or Red Stanberry. Red Stanberry produces some nice uh, squams as well, but Alex, Alex or Red Stanberry, they, they, they've got really nice-looking animals, and I'd like to support you know what they're doing and, and sure. stuff. So. Um, you know, but just have an exhibit with like, you know, 10 of them in there. Nice big one that with all the, to really show why they call them variable bush vipers. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, fun. uh, do you want to, do you want to tell us a little bit about your Cortalis campylai? Um, I don't really know much about it other than it was one of the snakes <laughs> that I got from, uh, that was, uh, in, in Derek's collection before oh, okay. he went off to FWC and, uh, yeah, we were, we were just lucky enough to, uh, you know, to acquire that animal when, when he went off, but it's a, it's a phenomenal snake. Yeah. It, it looks, it looks fantastic. I love how it sits in that, in that, or guess bromeliad or whatever that is. And uh, it's just a species you don't hear about too often. You don't see too often. And, you know, you're one of the only guys I know that has one. So. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, I have no idea. It, it is a really, really cool snake. And um, yeah, it's like a, I don't know if it is, if it's like, it, it must be some sort of it's like a dry looking bromeliad that I we've got in the quarantine enclosure. It's got little spikes on it. Kind of, kind of looks like a, some kind of a, a cactus you would see in its environment. One of those kind of like not really thorny, but kind of you know what I'm saying. It like it's it's because the, the enclosure the enclosure that it's in. I just don't want people to think like he's got a bromeliad in with a montane rattlesnake. It's no, like, yeah, it's, yeah it's it's not a bromeliad. Forgive me. It's a uh, well, it's it might be. It might be, it, it's some sort of like an aloe got, plant or something. I don't Kinda. know. It's got, it's got more because it, it was one of our, our, our plants that we have outside. We have like basically botanical gardens now. And uh, there's some, um, you know, it, it had like legitimate roots. You know, I know that the bromeliad will grow out, you know, roots to anchor to stuff, but this is more like rooty, rooty stuff. And it just, I was like, you know what? This looks like something you would find in that kind of habitat that it would sit on and whatever. And I put it right next to the basking lamp there. And that, that little rattlesnake likes to curl up right on top of that and, and get right under the sun. And it looks, it looks just like, uh, you know, how you, you might see one in, in the wild doing that. And, and it's just a basic quarantine enclosure. But I was looking for a place to put that plant. And I was like, uh, it looks a little too rugged for any, like, the, the palm vipers. You know, it looks a little bit more deserty than tropical. So I just threw that in there. And it threw a nice uh, look to the to the setup and and the animal is really using that little that little plant whatever it is yeah, it looks um, it looks very similar to red aloe i mean i don't think it is red aloe but it, it no it's very, not an aloe for sure it's it's it got looks more very of similar that, to that it's it, like the leaves are more of a bromeliad like a spiky bromeliad texture mm -hmm. of a leaf but it's it's more uh wispy i don't know i don't know how to explain it but it works it works <laughs> for the setup uh, yeah 
Yeah, and, uh, it'll probably die. It'll probably die. Not the rattlesnake. I mean, sure, at some point the rattlesnake will, will die, but um, you know, I'll, I'll probably cut that plant by sitting it right under the basking site until you know. But the snake likes to sit on it, so it's there for now. <laughs> nice. Nice. Anything yeah. new on the uh, the both Riekas front? Um, no, not really. You know, uh, we have a few different uh, meat species here. You know, but uh, we haven't we haven't acquired any new species. We've just kind of been um, uh, working on growing. Um, you know, the public side of things here, and basically growing um, all of our funds that you know, construction stuff and, and building stuff and, and, and all of that. But, uh, you know, we, uh, we were, we were hoping for a, a litter of, uh, yellow blotch palm vipers, um, the Bofriacus are for, uh, around, around August, around Daytona, uh, reptile expo uh, time. Um, cause that's when she produced uh, this particular female produced, uh, a litter of nine for us in wow. uh, 20 in 2020. Yeah, that was, that was a surprise to come home to. We were at the, the expo and uh, for the weekend came back, went in to check on the montane room and I, I wasn't expecting babies. I had paired the, them up in, in uh, like January, February of that year, um, but I, I didn't see any, um, you know, courting behavior. The snakes, uh, I never observed them sitting together. It doesn't mean it, it, nothing happened because clearly something did. Um, and so I was just, I separated them after a couple weeks, um, then put them back together. Uh, the female never went off food or anything, never exhibited signs. It was a pretty large female, and she didn't look like she was gravid or anything. So I was not expecting babies and came back and looked in the enclosure and, and uh, was staring a baby right in the face. And it took a minute <laughs> to comprehend what I was looking at. Um, and then there was, of course, the meltdown of, of like, oh, my God, there are baby R for in here. And then the, the second thought was, like, how long have they been in here? You know, like, yeah, they, could, yeah. they could have been dried up, you know, and, and uh, it was I was just so it was it was over the weekend at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, so we were really excited about that. A good majority of those babies ended up going to the Bronx Zoo. Um, and we had we had paired up that it was a repeat pairing with the same male uh, in the beginning of this, or I guess the beginning of 2022, and the, the pair locked up, and it was a visual lock, and it was a, I mean, it was, you know, you were, good. you you were, you were counting the babies in your head, you know, which is, <laughs> which, which, which you shouldn't do, you know, yeah, and, nothing, yeah. and nothing ended up ever happening, you know, uh, and so we're, we're, in, we're in January of uh, 2023, and, you know, she looks the same eating, and and not, uh, not, not, get, you know, not looking gravid or anything like that. So we'll, we'll probably. Did she look any different? Them. Did she look any different after she dropped the first time, or did she look the same? Man, she looked pretty close to the same. Hey, you know, she didn't have that deflated look of she just gave yeah. birth. Yeah, she still stayed pretty robust, and and literally she ate right afterwards. That's how we were able to get the babies out because she's one of our our only for that really have uh, a really strong feeding response that'll just rip things off the forceps from you nice. and we were we were like we can't try to fish these babies out with her you know there because she's gonna swing as soon as we touch one with the hook she's gonna swing in that direction and she's gonna kill a baby so we uh we fed her a rat we we, we stuffed a small rat in her mouth and while she was chewing on the rat we were fishing the babies out you know <laughs> and and 
And, um, you know, by the time she was finished with the rat, we had them all out. And then we hooked her out and put her in a can of water to hydrate and, and rinse off all that, you know, all that goo from giving birth. And um, now she, they're, they're in that one pelletarium you have uh, by your kitchen that's got the uh, like fish and everything in it. No, they're in the, they're, um, they're no, in the that's the room. that's the bilaniatus. Oh, that's the bilaniatus. Excuse me. Okay, because I was going to say yeah. is I didn't know if um how like thick or dense that enclosure was to try and find all the babies. Yeah, at that um, oh yeah that that paludarium was uh, taniata. There was there's bilaniata underneath them, and then uh, the taniata is the one that's uh, uh, okay, up okay. above that. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, they were um, it, it was planted, but it, it um. It, it had a, a pepperoni, a type of pepperomia vine that was growing in there that was really dense. Um, and in the wintertime, I, I, I don't have automatic misters on, on those enclosures. And it's just been, been hand misting because then we usually get, you know, give them a nice good spray and let them drink for a good while yeah. on top of having water dishes in them because they'll, they'll drink every single time you miss them. You know, I know I know a lot of people will say if they're as long as they've got a, a water bowl and they're hydrated, they're fine. But like these are a lot of these snakes are animals that in their environment the water comes to them. You know, they raise yeah. all we were in yeah. we were in Guatemala for two weeks, you know, and we were in the cloud forests for a few days. We 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 bounced around all over Guatemala, different habitats, but we were in cloud forests looking for our for um and uh we, we found three in three days uh that we were there and um you know it was in the middle it was in the early part of May. Um, and I guess that was, I guess what you would consider there, there's, there's summer, um, the, the beginning of the rain season there. Um, and, uh, they, it, it was, it was still pretty, it was still pretty dry. When we were about to leave, uh, from our trip, that's when the heavy rain started coming. We, we really, and we saw a lot of stuff, but we would have saw a lot more, um if we would have if we would have timed the range just right but also it would have made travel and 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 you know the expedition a little bit more challenging so it wasn't bad we found what we what we wanted to find out there but yeah. um you know the uh the, the the rain the rain the water comes to these snakes and if, if there's a pool of water if they're by a river or something obviously they're gonna dip their nose in there and get a drink but um you know the, it rains there so consistently being up, up in the cloud for us that you know they really never have to go anywhere for their water and every time we miss them i mean you could get an adequate miss with a miss king and stuff but if you're hand misting you could really just hold that nozzle right next to their face and let them chug water and we'll do that a couple times a week i'll i'll i don't over miss them but i will miss them you know a couple times a week few times a week but it's a it's a pretty heavy mist. Like uh, it'll be five minutes of spraying that snake in the face because oh, wow. it's it's just chugging the water. It's not like a little nine second mist, you know. Yeah. And then be just to wet it down because there's live plants in there, so we're we're watering the plants too. But if that snake's right there, it starts drinking off its scales, and I'll just let it. I basically will hold that nozzle on it until it it stops drinking. You know, it gets a good adequate drink. And man, you know, keep keeping those temps. Uh, well, in the middle or in the early part of May at night where we were, were finding Arifur, it was in the fifties. It was really, it was chilly. And we found a gravid or not a gravid female, but a female 
down in the riverbed cruising around like a cotton mouth looking for frogs and we got we got video of That's her in cool. C- yeah in c2 as we found her and this animal was just as alert as it could be it wasn't like it was slow from it being so cold like you could you could really be in an animal's habitat you know it's no lie when when people are saying you you really do have to keep the ambient cooler you know these animals still need to be able to bask and you you have to you know you can't just keep them at 60 degrees with with nothing you know we have uva and uvb on, on our animals and we have led lights for the plant growth and and everything so um but uh you know a lot a lot of the the montane palm vipers uh, that we have um they have access to the basking sites but they they hardly ever use them you know sometimes the fem- the big female when she was gravid um you know in hindsight i noticed i i i noticed that she was basking a little bit more and she has been using her basking site a little bit more than she she normally does i, I don't think it's anything like that that, that she's gravid i mean I say that and then there could be babies in there, you know, in the next couple of days and that would be phenomenal, but I'm not going to get my hopes up. It's been, you know, a year. It's really time to pair them up again. So, um, you know, and I'm going to do a repeat pairing of, of that one just because the male that sired the last, you know, we sent a lot of them to the wrong zoo and I'd like to have some of that bloodline. We have, we have a few males, we have a few females, um, you know, represented in the collection, all unrelated to each other. And I would like to get a litter, you know, from this female, from this male, keep some stuff and then put a different male with her that's completely unrelated and really try to get some genetically diverse uh, stock here, you know, you know, and, and we'll probably end up placing a lot of those animals in different zoos that we know work with montane snakes, just, just to, for, for, um, uh, you know, risk management assurance populations outside of our own facility, you know, that whether it, they go on loan to us from us to the facility. So we maintain yeah. ownership and, you know, there's other bloodlines of R for within, within AZA zoos that um, we can, you know, get some extra diversity with and stuff. Cause as we know, you know, uh, we're you know, no stranger to, we've had disease go through the collection and stuff and, and you would really hate to have all your R for, you know, under one roof when, when, when some Armageddon thing goes down uh, you'd like to have those things somewhere else. So you can withstand any, any, you know, bumps in the road that you, you go through, but um, yeah, so I'll probably throw her with, uh, with the same male again. And, he, and he's a proven breeder. Well, I don't know what, what went on there, but that just happens, you know, maybe, maybe they breed every other year, every two years, it's a montane, you know, snake, um, and they, they do things a little bit differently, you know, like some yeah. of these montane rattlesnakes and stuff, you know, are, are not every year breeders, you know, they, they may breed every other year. We were, we were at the venomous herpetology, uh, symposium, um, or the, the, the uh, venomous herpetological symposium. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what it's, what, 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 what they're calling it. I, uh, if it's, if it's herpetology symposium or herpetological symposium, right, but anyway, right. uh, there was, uh, there was a, a guest uh, speaker there that did uh, Willard I Obscurus uh, research at one of these mountain ranges, uh, you know, where they're found and has been doing it for a really long time. And, and he presented a lot of really, really fascinating data. And, and these animals are not producing every single year, you know, maybe every other year or so. And, and right. um, 
you know, it just, it, it, it makes sense. And so maybe that, you know, and I, and who knows what sperm retention looks like on these montane snakes where it's a lot cooler, you know, year round and stuff. And we know that these other reptiles, you know, can hang on to sperm for a long time before they use it. So what's the capable, you know, the capability of a montane snake to do the same thing until they feel like it's right, your conditions are right yeah. and, and whatnot. So who's to say that, you know, just by, you know, up, upping the feeding or something like that. And they go, you know, oh, it's, you know, this is a good time of year to reproduce. I'm going to use that sperm now. Um, I don't, there's a lot of unknowns, you know, it's, it's really just kind of trial by fire with these things. Um, but uh, the, this group of, uh, of ARFA that we've had, uh, you know, we, we got them in uh, uh, 2018 and, um, and all, all of those animals are still alive, you know, not on wood and, and doing, you know, outwardly very well and look very good and robust and hydrated. You know, I think, I think hydration is super important with these things. I, I think, you know, don't, don't get them above 72 during the day for an ambient, uh, you know, you could have a, a hot spot that gets into the, the low to mid eighties, but just make sure it's in a large enough enclosure where that, that temperature isn't heating up the entire enclosure that it's a little pocket isolated pocket of heat that they could go to and that they could get cool. You know, if they, usually they're going to choose cool over, over the heat unless, you know, maybe either they're a gravid female, an animal digesting or potentially an animal that's not doing too hot. That's seeking out heat to, to help, you know, push itself through an illness or or whatnot. Um, And uh, and in the evening and during the summertime, I think you get down into the low sixties, uh, wow. no heat. We don't, we don't do any after dark, our, our montane rooms at 62 degrees, uh, right now, all, all heat is off. Um, when it gets really cold outside, um, you know, the rooms will drop a little bit more than that. And these, we, we still feed them, you know, uh, we, we, we never feed heavy, all these montane snakes, uh, you know, we feed like every four to six weeks. Um, oh wow okay yeah and um i just kind of i just uh, really if i can remember the last time i'm feeding them i'm feeding them too much and when you are feeding them is it smaller like multiple smaller meals no i'll just do i'll do one either we'll either do like a a young adult softford mouse or rat I don't know. There's a the African softbird rats, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, are they a rat? Are they a mouse? What even? What even are they? You know, it's uh, sometimes African softbird rodents. Yeah, softbird rodents. They are cool. We have a cool little group that uh, is um, was bred for um, not being as bitey as they're known to be. Taking the the ones that are the the, the breeder had kind of refined the nippiness out of them so we have softwards that we could put our hands in the you know in there and pick out pinkies without getting chomped on so that's kind of nice and um uh, so we'll use we'll use we'll we'll feed small small adult softwards we'll do um hopper size to young adult mice and then as far as rats go um really like a crawler rat is about as big as we'll go um for most of the adult are for uh the big female that reproduce she's about three feet she's a really big snake 
um wow. and wow. yeah she's yeah she's a she's a beast and um she'll she'll take a a large small rat like a large large small on the verge of a small medium so like maybe like a 80 plus gram um small rat and she she could do that and it'll leave just a modest sized lump in her belly um so she could take some bigger stuff um but the vast majority of, of everything else um you know as far as rats go probably like a crawler so so really the better meal for them is a, a softford or a young adult mouse because of the nutritional you know like a young adult mouse has young adult nutrition more more developed bone organ what have mm -hmm. you where, where a crawler rat more well-rounded yeah yeah more well-rounded you know the, the the rat pup is more just kind of a a gushy little you know protein pouch you know for them and uh so it's like we, we try to do a little diversity we're raising chickens now um and as well as uh, as as well as quail and hatching them um for some extra diversity in the diet too the the baby chicks come out perfect adult are for size and the baby quail are you know uh young young um home viper size you know they're very small um and yes. a, lo a lot of the times they will they will go after that because it has a scent you know we euthanize them with co2 i, I won't i won't feed them live you know that's horrible <laughs> i like i like the birds you know i don't want to see that but uh you know a lot a lot of the um a lot of the the are for uh other than that one female who is really 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 uh just bold and and like i said just snatches stuff off the forceps the rest of them are kind of pouty about that so really the rest of them want live um so so we'll just toss in live and uh and the, they usually will take it no problem nice. um but so if you're gonna do live uh you know we want to make sure that the prey that we're putting in there cannot inflict damage on those snakes so so sure. you know young adult mice and young adult softbirds uh really at the biggest because they, they if they bite back um it's not going to do too much damage to the snake because mm -hmm. You know that I I remember one of these palm vipers. I did a, a adult mouse, and they grabbed it, but they grabbed it on the back end, and that snake or that mouse turned around and just latched onto this snake's cheek, and I almost had a heart attack. I was like, Ooh, you know, Christ. I was I was trying to I was I put the forceps in the, in the mouse's mouth so it could chew on that because the snake wouldn't let it go. The snake was just ha hanging on tighter, right. you know, and and I, I think that's where a lot of these snakes end up getting injuries from prey items is you know like i had that happen with a, a black-headed python here that we were euthanizing rats a bunch of large rats and as an adult black-headed python and I, I ran out of co2 halfway through the through the process and i was like oh man i gotta feed the you know this and this rat's like starting to wake up from it because it didn't go through a full cycle it was horrible it was a horrible experience and i and i tossed it to the blackhead and it, you know they're like a big dumb king snake you know they come flying out <laughs> and, and 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 grabs it grabs it by the back end too and, and it wakes this rat up you know because it was like coming to and of course this rat just bites right into the side of this blackhead really good bite bloods everywhere you know and, yeah, and I, you know, and, I, and it's just, it was just a, it's horrible blood all over the floor, you know. That and blackhead just, that like, you have is a dick too. Doesn't help. Oh yeah, but you know, both of them, they're definitely. I, mean, I, I treat them like they're venomous, you know. I, uh, I'll, uh, I'll pull them out with a snake hook, or most of the time when we, when I service the enclosure, 
I just, um, I just throw a rat in its mouth. And once it wraps it, I just put it in the can and then stuff it back in the enclosure, you know, when we're done, because you can't just pick that. You can't just reach in there and grab that. So the snake is not a bad snake um, once it's outside of its feeding response. But when that door drops down, I mean, it's like a mamba with a feeding response, you know, it's just, uh, it's, you know, it's it's a beautiful snake, but you know, for how much everybody loves those snakes, you know, it's, uh, you know, when you, I mean, uh, there, there are people that just solely breed those snakes too, and they, they love them, but, uh, you know, you really got to love them. And they're not all, they're all obviously not all that way. Every snake is an individual, but, um, you know, they are definitely, um, they are a big uh, python king snake is what is what they are with that same you know when you have king snakes for a while and it's like second the door opens they're like food 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 they latch on to the side of the tub they latch on to themselves they latch on to you and those black-headed pythons are just like that just a long lean python that acts like a, a dumb california king snake you know, you know? <laughs> well speaking of aussie stuff how are the deathies the death adders um they're alive <laughs> no uh, um, no productions on the horizon no i haven't i haven't you know i've been really bad about just even trying to you know i've got got mail here and and um we have a we have a single maruki male um and we have a pair of uh the jaras that uh the female is proven too she she gave us 27 babies wow. in, in, in 2017 and uh you know those babies were quite quite the nightmare uh to get going and um you know it just you really have to spend a lot of time on them you know if you're gonna if you're gonna to to get them established and so some people don't have any any troubles with them i i had yeah a lot of troubles and i was i was peace feeding them you know pinky heads and stuff and i was able to get them to bite them and eat you know i was i was treating them like a a tree viper, you know, a terrestrial tree viper is, well, you know, they caught a lure and stuff, you know, so, uh, you know, the old tail tap side of the head tap. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I know that, uh, 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 Scott probably, um, you know, is, is much more dialed in with, 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 uh, snakes. Um, but, uh, I just, uh, you know, they ate for me, but they just, every time, I, you know, he's probably got all of the tips and tricks. And at this go around, I probably would have just tried to feed him house geckos or stings or something yeah. you know, instead of instead of trying so hard with, with what I was doing. Because every single time I did the tease feeding thing, um, they would eat. But every every next time after that, it was like the first time you ever offered him a meal. It was always so hard to get him to eat. Like you ended up spending so much time per snake. And oh, yeah. it never It never seemed to get easier you know like they never just seem to get with it like next time oh it was a little easier than the last time and the next time until they're finally just taking them off the forceps the, the litter that i got was just really a nightmare and um right now i just wouldn't have the time to, to dedicate to all of those babies to, and, unless i had a really good source for lizards or skinks or i mean i i hadn't tried uh uh, uh, brown anoles, you'd have to go out and you'd have to find the right size brown anole. You know, that would be the problem is like, you can't just be like, I just want real small ones. You know, you have to go yeah. out there and look. Up. But, uh, but yeah. Well, if I you mean, make I, more, if you make more, you let me know and I will uh, gladly get them eating for you. Yeah. What do you, <laughs> uh, what, what do you, what do you uh, have you established a 
just patience, man. Just patience. Yeah. I, I regret not keeping any of the stuff that I had in the past. And uh, oh, and I had the patience yeah. too, you know. Like I, I was, but I was just like, man, it's I was time, never, man. It's it's yeah, it it's was, time management. It was time. It Sucks. was so much, you know. When, when we when we had when we had the um, the litter, we had over four hundred snakes in the collection at that wow. time, and. Um, Are you guys there? Yeah, we lost you for a second. You said you had 400 um, snakes at the time. Yeah, so sorry, my uh, my earbud died. I had to switch it for the other one. Um, the uh, yeah, we had 400 snakes at the time, and we had a litter or a clutch of chondros hatch, and uh, we had 16 baby chondros that I had to establish at that time. Also, we had a um, Sri Lankan palm hip viper give birth to seven babies and then i had those to establish and um so there was a lot of there was a lot of really aggravating snakes that showed up all at once and um it was just and then uh, in addition to a bunch of other uh neonates that we we had just received um and it was just it was very 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 time consuming and um you know now i think i would uh, I would approach things a little differently on um, on everything. I, I don't think what I don't think what I was doing um, was was wrong because I was getting the animals to, to eat. But I, I think that it was you know I wasn't I wasn't feeding them. I wasn't offering them food twice a week to really get that that feeding response kicking in. You know it was yeah. you know yeah. maybe every ten days or something like that. And also with the the level of tease feeding that I had to do that I felt like I was really stressing these animals out. I didn't really want to do it more than I was already doing it. And, um, you know, you know how it goes, but yeah, no, the females she, that, that produced that she's, she's still here. And, uh, yeah, I, I probably should probably give her a go, you know, just, just, just because, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, we, we also had some, you know, disease things going through the, the, we, you know, we always end up, uh, you know, so lucky with, with getting some of these, these things, you know, we learn a lot each time and, and we get a little bit better at managing the collection, um, through each one of these, but, uh, we, we had a, um, we had a, uh, uh, uh an outbreak of cryptosporidium in the oh, collection geez. and it was, uh, you know, it's very, it's a very cryptic disease when it's not showing itself, you know, and you don't really know if like who's got it, who, who does, you know, and you really, uh, in, unless you get somebody's actively showing you symptoms and regurgitating or mid body swelling or looking, you know, like they're, uh, waste, you know, they're, you know, we had animals that were looking like they were wasting away, but eating once a week and not looking like you hadn't fed them in, in, in a year. And, um, you know, the cryptosporidium, uh, it will affect the way that the animals, you know, digest their food, process nutrition, so on and so yeah. forth. Which, um, um, you know, are, are you at liberty to say what species was, was it venomous stuff? Um, oh yeah, no, I mean, we had, we had lost, uh, uh, Papua New Guinea Taipan to crypto. We lost, we lost a Jaraka, both of Jaraka. 
oh, to geez. crypto. We lost uh, a captive born and raised perfect yearling, uh, both Riochis Caniata, the Speckle Forest Pit Viper. Damn. Um, and, um, oh, geez, we uh, and uh, had a couple couple other things. And we thing is, we, we, we've been doing crypto tests on things uh, and doing like gastric swabs, sending them into University of Florida for. Uh, you know the, the the proper you know tests uh, the QPCRs right. and then what have you and um, you know we ran a, a test uh, we, we ran uh, we did twenty four samples of twenty four different snakes um, and uh, might have been twenty four different species too that that we just that had looked like just visually to me like they there could be something going on whether sure. animal sure. had had regurged at some point um is looking like you know is eating well but but not gaining any weight and looking like it's wasting weight just just red flags we, we sampled a lot of red flag snakes you know and yeah. um you know out of those 24 samples literally all of them uh came back negative and we wow. and these and, yeah. and these were and these were swabs that you know we tubed the snakes we we put the swab you know, PM put the swab into what what we, uh, you know, assumed was the stomach area as far as the depth goes on whatever size snakes that we were we were swabbing, and you get a real good. And this is a, a sterile swab. It's basically it goes. It looks like a like a like a little mini snake tube that a neonate coral snake or something could fit in, right? But they ha- but it encases your swab that you use, and and and, and you basically put this this little tube down the animal's throat to the to you get to the approximate stomach area and then you push the swab from the outside um out of the tube goes into the you know the stomach you swirl it around you get a you know a good sample pull that swab back into that tube so when it comes out you're not getting any of the other stuff you know right, like right. on the sample as you go up and you know Pia's no uh no stranger to doing this kind of stuff you know she got good samples good solid samples if anything was there you know it would have it would have you know at least active crypto that we would have we would have seen it but sometimes you know they're not it's not shedding at the certain time and the, the virus is not or not virus but the the disease is um you know not not uh not, running its course yeah or it's whatever. not rampant yeah so you know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh factors in that a lot of variables um on whether you're going to get a positive or negative and then you might have to try again in three months and maybe you'll get that positive to show up so it really goes into your keeper observational skills right like what sure what you what you know that a lot of these snakes that were showing symptoms were snakes that we have raised from babies for years so i knew you know you know what they look like when they're healthy and they're doing right. good and you right. you know when they're off you know you're just you look at them and you, there's something off there. They're not holding their head in the same way that they normally do. They're, they're instead of tightly, you know, coiled like a palm viper should be, they're sprawled out. You're looking uncomfortable. They're looking stressed. They're moving around a lot or they're not moving around enough for what they are. And uh, you just see it. And, and that could be an indicator to pull them and put them into isolation or whatever while you're, while you're running these tests. But we, uh, you know, the, the the ones that we have confirmed positive cryptos on were unfortunately 
the, the deceased animals after necropsy. Sometimes you're mm-hmm. not getting the information you, you yeah. want when they're alive. You get the, the Jararaca, and when we did the necropsy, um, at first it did not uh, show as crypto. They had to run another test and do something else with the stomach lining and stuff. And then all, and then all of a sudden there was, you know, and, um, but I knew that that snake was circling the drain for a year, you know, as a three foot Bothrops that was regurgitating, you know, uh, pinky, pinky and, and pop rats, uh, cause it couldn't hold them down. You know, this is a snake that's Damn. physically capable of digesting a medium rat, you know, and it's, and it's throwing up you know, pup rats. And, um, you know, we, uh, I don't know, I don't know if we ended up submitting samples and got nothing back um, when the snake was alive, but we ended up making the, the call to euthanize that animal and send it in for necropsy because it, it wasn't dying. And, and we knew at this point it was not going to get better. Um, yeah, and we needed, right. we needed some answers, you know, okay. uh, cause this snake was, we raised it and, you know, for a baby, and it was just a solid, solid Bothrops, you know, everything that you would expect out of the, the genus. And, um, you know, when it started acting the way it did, it was just a, a red flag. So a lot of the times the keeper's insight can be, be, be more correct than the tests are at the time, you know, like you observe your animal, if there's a problem, get that animal somewhere away from all the other animals while you're figuring out if it's something that can you know, spread through the collection and whatnot. We've right. upped we've upped our quarantine and our uh again, it just seems like every every time it's a new level of what we do. So it ends up making us better at the end of the day, but it really when you're going through it, it doesn't feel so good. Um but with crypto, uh there's only a handful of disinfectants that actually disinfect crypto and uh like bleach and quantitary ammonias like F ten and simple green. Are, are ineffective on crypto soap and water is not effective to to clean you know uh, that that uh, the protozoan so um hydrogen peroxide solution six percent or greater is what veterinarians say to 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 use against crypto <laughs> so there, there's different disinfectants we use one called rescue that is a veterinary mm-hmm. disinfectant um, that uh, is uh, allegedly uh, supposed to kill crypto. It kills parvo and puppies, which is a you know another really really hardy uh, disease that uh, is not easily disinfected. Um, and uh, we sanitize all of our equipment with with that. We also have a twelve percent hydrogen peroxide solution that we have to wear. Wow. Glo- you know, we we wear gloves you know, always, but you, you can't use the 12% solution without gloves or you'll get chemical burns on your fingers. So that, you know, that's for cleaning buckets. It's food, it's food safe, hydrogen peroxide, it's food grade, but uh, I mean, you still don't want that stuff on your hands. It'll turn your fingertips all white. And um, it's, uh, it's pretty intense stuff, but um, you know, we, we have multiple cans in rotation and multiple sets of hooks in rotation when we work the animals. So like if we do one snake now, we'll sanitize with that, that hydrogen peroxide solution um, rescue or the 12%. And we'll, we'll set that can to the side, use another can, sanitize that can, set it to the side, do another can, set it to the side. By the time we're through our sets of cans, 
that first can has been sitting for you know over 20 minutes and has, has really sat there and really sanitized and then we'll hose we'll hose the whole thing off and um you know uh and then start over so um we're re we're really maniacal on sanitation on sanitation now and it, it, it's really not paranoia as much as it is just kind of how we have to do things if we really want to eliminate a lot of these problems like you have to spend the time and the energy to, to do and the money to, to do it properly and even then it's not foolproof you know we've definitely seen um animals in different rooms that have uh tested positive for crypto and died from crypto um and uh that that we work on totally different days different people work them some of the the snakes in the main room and stuff. I don't, I don't um, work with as much anymore because we have team members that are capable of doing that. So I, I work with a certain group of snakes, other people work with a different group of snakes and we try not to, um, you know, cross that too much. And, sure. you know, one, one of the things that I, I undoubtedly, um, you know, and I know uh, uh, Zach, Zach Lohman um, is, uh, that's how you pronounce his last name, right? Yeah, Dr. Lofman. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, uh, uh, you know, he, I, I remember hearing him say this on, on one of your guys' um, shows, and I 100% stand behind it, the little forward flies or the scuttle flies that oh, yeah. we have here in the southeast. I mean, like, it is, it is, it is damn hard, if not impossible, to eradicate these things from getting into your enclosure is the second, second an animal defecates and you don't have fully sealed vents from insect netting or something, those flies are going to get in there and crypto is only spread through physical contact, saliva or fecal, um, you know, contact. So, so it's not something that's airborne that's, that's floating around and, you know, it has to be transmitted. So whether it's a snake on a hook and you don't wash your hooks, a snake in a can and you don't wash your cans. And it, even if you're using bleach, you know, that's still not going to kill crypto. So effectively right. you're, you're using just water to do it, you know, and you may not know, you know, I think we've had it in the, I think we've had it for a minute and just the animals just were not showing symptoms um, because we haven't brought in any animals, um, you know, other than Derek stuff or n n nothing real notable in a long, in a long time, you know, and um, you know, these, and the rooms that have uh, had animals that have, tested positive for crypto you know the, just when you when you reflect on the equipment that you use different equipment different buckets different people in the rooms at different times and you're just like how how did it get here and then you see these little forward flies you know moving yep. from one enclosure to the, the other and they look like little fruit flies and if they're dancing around on some infected snakes um you know feces and they go into the next enclosure and they tap dance all over the snake crawl around on their water bowl uh, maybe die in their water bottle or water bowl um and the snake gets a drink then then boom um and i, I think zach was saying uh you know on, on the on one of your guys' episodes that it takes you know three to five crypto spores or whatever to to infect the snake that's not very many from how many you know how much of that is is present in, 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 oh, in yeah. a snake that's actively shedding the, the disease um, and its feces. Um, and, and really, you know, you, if you have a snake that has it and regurgitates, man, those flies, they are just, you open that bin and they just all fly out into the room and, you know, <laughs> now they're going to go visit every other enclosure that you've got. And man, it, 
it's a real problem. I, I know that there's drain fly. They also call them drain flies, ford flies are, are yeah. uh, in the filk fly family, you know, so they're attracted to moist, uh, you know, tropical conditions, you know, your, your mulch, your feces, Florida. your Florida, pretty much Florida, Florida <laughs> and, the, and the rest of the Southeast U.S. Uh, you know, I don't remember ever dealing with these when I lived in the Southwest. I don't ever remember seeing forward flies, you know, and then, and then now you get them in your incubator boxes out here. You, mm-hmm. They're just very, very, they're annoying because it makes me feel like all the things that we're doing uh, with all of our sanitation practices and our testing and everything, it's like, what's, what's it all for? Because with these, as long as these flies exist, I feel like we're really not, uh, you know, we're eliminating some variables by cleaning our equipment with the right, right dis- disinfectants and, and whatnot. But, um, you know, with those flies uh, around it, just, you know, they, they could trans, they could move it from room to room. Uh, you know, we have very, you know, we have the, the catchy, you know, fly catchers, those work, those pull some off the streets. We have different flight traps and whatnot, but still, you know, it's not getting them all. Um, you really have to, we're, we're, when we have the new building up, we're going to really, you know, think uh, hard on how we can really prevent those flies from getting into the areas where snakes are. Um, and I know it's not going to be a, you know, a perfect uh, scenario, but um, I know there's got to be some things that, that we could do. Just like, you know, when you go into a gas station or something and the, and the thing above your head blows all the air out so it doesn't, you know, uh, let out all the air, you know, in the, in the yeah. gas station yeah. or whatever. You know, maybe something like that where you open the door and it just blows all the air, you know, so any of these flies can't come in. Um, you know, dump the, the forward fly killer down your drains because the drain flies a lot of times are coming in through your drains and that's how oh, they're yeah. getting in there. You know, uh, but that but the Ford fly killer for your drains is very expensive, um, you know, and it's uh, it, it's just dumping some bleach down your uh, your drain every day enough to keep those flies at bay. I don't know. Um, you know, I just haven't really been able to. They're just there. You know, they're not they're not there in numbers, but they just show up. And um, yep. Yep. And, and, I've, I've and personally up- found that using Drano at least once a month and it doesn't have to be a whole jug of Drano, but putting a solid, you know. I don't know, maybe five or five shot glasses worth down your drain, like each of your drains, like your tub, your sink in your bathroom, your sink in your kitchen once a month will definitely keep them at bay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll, um, I'll start doing that because we see if we see a difference, but you know, our, we have a secondary containment for, um, you know, entering where all the venomous stuff is and on nice days, you know, we'll leave that door open and, um, a snake can't get out of it, but a fly, a fly can get in and out, especially those. And, um, you know, so it's like, you know, they they may be coming in through that. Um, I was, I was thinking about putting secondary insect wire over the the wire that we have there for the secondary containment. It's, it's extra money, but you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's uh, a peace of mind. It's peace of mind. Um, and, and you just got to, constantly be doing those little things to uh you know try to to minimize as much of that as you can and it, it may never be a perfect system but um if yeah even something them- even something simple like using flies like fly ribbon in summer when you have that like in your secondary containment like just put a fly ribbon in there and you know that way if anything comes in the secondary containment it's going to want to go to the ribbon you know or hopefully it wants to go to the ribbon yeah, 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 yeah. We definitely have 
some of those ribbons <laughs> hanging about and yeah. and what have you. So we did, we just got to add more of them. And, and, uh, you know, I don't know if those, uh, those little yellow pest strips, I don't like putting them in the enclosures. I know people do that, but you know, it is poison. Um, yeah. you know, oh, so yeah. I, I like to try it maybe just behind the enclosures, you know, and just seeing if that, uh, or just like stick it to the back of the enclosures by where the vents are and see if that's a deterrent. Um, but just, just little things, you know, but that, that's definitely something that I think people, especially in the Southeast, really need to be mindful of, you know, with disease um, transfer, those little damn forward flies, they, they'll, I think, I think that might be a, another reason how uh, a lot of the diseases that we have had have spread um, by sure, those flies. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, Chris Barr had a great idea of using like a like a bug light or a bug zapper in the room too. Couldn't hurt, you know. Yeah, you know they make they make the bug lights, uh, the bug zapper kind of things, but with a with a sticky pad that they have a light that goes to the sticky pad. Oh, that's um, cool. You know, to basically a lesser fire hazard way of taking yeah. care of <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, sure, with, sure. with all the reptile stuff, you know, it's a fire hazard just existing. Um, you know, I like with bugs zapping around here too, you know, it's, uh, I like, I like that idea, but yeah, those catchies have like a little UV light on them too. It attracts. Yeah, they do. And it definitely works. I love those things. Yeah. I swear by those damn catchies, man. I'm, things are worth every penny. Oh, they really are. Yeah. I, I would, I would put multiple in a room, you know, they're 40 bucks each. They're not too bad. And, you know, when you want to buy a fleet of them, it, you know, it adds up pretty quick. Um, but uh, they definitely do their job, you know. We definitely catch a lot of them, and, uh, as well as other flying things that could, you know, spread disease. Little moths and, and and what have you. You know, you don't you don't think of a moth as spreading a disease, but if it's in yep. a cage with a diseased animal and then it dies, and I constantly find little moths uh, drowned in snakes' water that got through the vents, you know. Yep. Um, and uh, so it's just those little those little things that somebody might not think of until. You know, you know, until you're eliminating all your variables and you're like, well, what's left? You know, oh, you, yeah. I, I remember watching those flies crawl around on uh, on some snake feces and then then uh, and then just crawled right out of that that vent and then popped in from into the next enclosure next to it. And I, I was just oh, like, geez. I was like, there you go. That's it right there, you know, and. You know, there are some people that are like, well, you know, that are skeptical that that could be a thing. But I'm just like, well, if the snake, if the fly is walking around on on the snake's poop and then goes to the next, you know, enclosure and it doesn't take much to infect the snake, then how could that not be a plausible, you know, uh, scenario on disease transfer? And Elliot Jacobson, yeah, Dr. Elliot Jacobson is a world-renowned reptile that is retired now, but um, he's been most notable by reptile people probably for his work with paramyxovirus. He did a lot of research on paramyxovirus, wrote some papers and stuff. And we're lucky enough to call him a friend. He lives in Gainesville. Um, and we'll, we'll go out with him, you know, periodically for you know, dinners and grab, grab, grab beers, you know, and, um, and just chat. And, uh, you know, he definitely thinks that those, uh, forward flies can be mechanical transmitters of disease, um you know and it just seems like a logical thing uh more 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 testing and more research would have to be done you know controlled right. studies of you know but i think i think it's worth for some somebody some academic to to test that because i sure would love to 
you know, they, they could work That's on good. it in our collection. They could work on it in our collection. We'll provide the samples, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and see, uh, see how it goes. Cause I feel like, um, you know, logically speaking, it just seems like a, 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 a plausible thing. Yeah. And you have not screamed and cursed at the world until it's, you go to take a sip of your coffee and there's a forward fly just sitting on top of it. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. The bane of my existence. So. Yep. Forward fly sitting in there. That was just covered in crypto. You get to get crypto from from your coffee. Yep. yep. Uh, crypto worries me more than Nido does at this point. Like I'm much more concerned about crypto popping up than than really anything else. They're all bad, you know. We've 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 experienced the gamut. We've had Paramixa virus, we've had Nida virus, we've had crypto, and um, you know they're all bad. Our our uh, bout with Paramixa virus was uh, was not as bad as it could have been. We brought in two side stripe palm pit vipers, the Botryacus lateralis, and uh, they were in a collection that we knew of for years. They were uh, good established snakes. Doesn't mean that they're not not diseased. Um, they exchanged hands a few times. By the time we got him, male wasn't acting right. Within three weeks, he was dead. Necropsied, um, you know, paramix. So they were they were sent to us in the same bin. So the female, we tested her. We were not shocked when she was also positive with paramix. So um, she acted fine until she died about three weeks later, just like eating fine, out of the blue, dead. But she was infected with paramix virus. And um, yeah, and we ended up having. Uh, um, it, it, well, well, it was for we we got them right before the first carpet fest that we hosted here in 2019, and I broke quarantine against Pia's, um, you know, uh, strong, strong advice to not put them in the main Montane room um, until after they cleared quarantine. I really wanted to exhibit them for that event, like everybody cared about them as much as I did. I they could have been in quarantine and nobody would have cared because there was plenty of other cool stuff to look at. But sure, sure. They, they were beautiful snakes. I, I really wanted them for a long time. I knew of these snakes for a long time. They were in somebody's collection that I really, uh, you know, trust. It doesn't mean that the snakes can't be diseased. I don't think they, they were diseased from him, but they exchanged hands. She went into a few collections before they found their way here. So I think they picked it up along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I had to put them in there and um, we, we, we tested and we, we still quarantined them in the room by uh, working them last, having separate tools. They were in the same room, but we were, uh, we were conscientious of how the, and that probably saved everybody else in that room because um, nobody else came down with Paramixo in that room. Ironically, uh, we had a Mexican West Coast rattlesnake, Catalus basiliscus, that uh, um, in the main room, the main display room that, uh, had come down with Paramixo uh, a little while later, started gaping her mouth and acting like she had symptoms. And um, it wasn't we... Big Pun, was it? No, no, it wasn't Big Pun. That's a Mexican blacktail rattlesnake. We still have old Pun, and he's still as big as ever. Uh, but uh, she started gaping her mouth and acting like, you know, she had Paramixo virus, or at least the beginning symptoms of it. So we tubed her, swabbed her, sent in the sample. Sure enough, she came back positive with Paramix. So, um, and we decided not to do it. We decided not to move her. We decided not to do anything because we were like, if we start moving stuff, you know, we don't know. We don't know how how things are going to play out if we just yeah. observe. 
So yeah. we so we left her in there, and um, sure enough, like uh, six months went by. She never died, um, and wow. we tested her again, and she tested negative for paramixo. Um, and Elliot Jacobs, when I was talking to Elliot Jacobs, and he's very vague when when you when you ask him about stuff like that. A lot of these good veterinarians usually are because they, you know, it's it's a lot of unknowns, so they don't yeah, they don't want to speak know. in definitives. Right, right. So he was, he, but I said, you know, is this like a Nida virus scenario where I could get, uh, you know, she passes, you know, she doesn't die from the episode, but she can flare up and become infectious at another point in time, you know, due to stressors or what have you. And she, uh, and he says, well, if, they, if they don't die from it and they, uh, they recover, they, they may end up being one of the best snakes in your collection because they, they, they built up a little bit of that tolerance for it and stuff and um he said i said he said that there's no long-term or there's no evidence that there's long-term transmission of paramyxovirus after they have either either died or recovered from that episode and and that's that snake we still have her right now she's she's super solid um always eats eight the whole time she had paramyxovirus i mean it, it can wipe out a whole collection in a matter of of, of weeks you know we yeah. we just um you know i don't uh, you know, we caught it soon enough and we kind of like slowed down our handling for cleaning and stuff like we obviously we still clean but we weren't just going you know we were very yeah, cautious taking, taking precautions yeah yeah and um you know she 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 recovered and um I'd like to, I'd like to do another test just to, just to see, you know, but it's a, it's interesting data and it just kind of goes to show is like some, sometimes it could be a catastrophic collection ending event. And then sometimes the animal, you know, that's what genetic diversity helps with. Not everything's going to die from it. You know, something, you know, just like COVID, some people get got a little bit of a sore throat and, 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 and some people died from it, you know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, uh, it's just uh, you know so so now when we come when we when we end up dealing with these these kind of things, it's like I I used to be like the world is ending and again again it can but now I'm a little bit more I don't know mature to it when when something optimistic comes back. yeah like yeah, yeah like no, I, optimistically pessimistic or pessimistically optimistic you know I, I'm just a little bit less like reactive not reactionary to it and just go right to proactive like okay well what are we going to do with our you know sanitizing practices now mm-hmm. how are we going to move forward like what, what we we do a, do a two glove system when we're cleaning enclosures now um you know we'll have the latex gloves on or your nitro gloves on and uh that that's the primary gloves you're wearing as you're just doing everything and you're sanitizing your gloves in between things with the right sanitizers because you're not you don't want to put that on your hands so you do it on the gloves um but we also have food prep gloves that are biodegradable so if they end up in the environment that they'll they'll fall apart you know they're not like plastic gloves oh, nice. but but we'll put those over the other gloves so if you're doing a spot clean instead of spot cleaning with like uh, salad tongs or something and using the same salad tongs for every single enclosure we're doing these gloves putting them over your other gloves use them as kind of a doggy bag you know and, and, and grab what you need to clean toss it and then toss the gloves that you are wearing sanitize your primary gloves and then put a new set of, of the disposable gloves over those for the next enclosure yeah. and um 
yeah, I mean, it costs a little bit of money to do that. Uh, we try to use the biodegradable gloves when, you know, wherever we can, just because we're going to be using a lot of them and we don't want to, we don't want to do that to the environment, you know, but sure. it's like kind of one of those things that it's just what we do now. It's just, a, it's a standard uh, practice and that certainly is going to eliminate some variables. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and as long as you, you keep your, your, your management practices, disease management practices high and take it seriously and do the right research and, you know, listen to people that have had these issues happen to them and have been proactive to try to fix it. Um, you know, it's, uh, you're not going to lose your whole collection. You know, your animal might fall yeah. here and there. And, and really, it's kind of inevitable, inevitable. <laughs> uh, like, uh, it, it, if you're doing this for a long time, and you have a lot of animals in the collection, um, you know, if you're, you're if, to have if, something you're, happen. if you're not experiencing it, you're not testing for it, you know, because you just don't right. know that you have it, you know, the, oh, the animal died, but it was, you know, everybody comes up with their own optimistic uh, uh, opinion on why the animal died. But I, I never act like I know why I died until the necropsy comes back because I get blindsided every single time I act like I know mm-hmm. what, what just happened. Um, you know, and if you, if you, if you take it as a learning opportunity, it doesn't hurt as bad because we're looking long-term into the future. You know, this is, this is, uh, you know, a, you know, a marathon, not a sprint, you know, and, right. and, and you have to pace yourself, and, um, you know, as we grow this collection, cause it is growing and we're getting, we're, we're sitting somewhere around 70 different species of exotic venomous snakes right now. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, that number is, is growing and, you know, like I said, it's not going to be the first time that we've seen something. It won't be the last time, you know, and, and new stuff too, that maybe doesn't even have a name yet that, sure. that we'll be dealing with. So really just like as, as these things happen, we just really become very mindful of what else that could be out there. And let's just try to do everything as clean and as sanitary as, as, as we possibly can. And, um, you know, and then learn from what, what the data tells us if an animal dies and we necropsy it, it's like where we go, go from there. And it's the best you can do. You know, it's, it, just like veterinarians are practicing veterinary medicine, we're practicing herpetological husbandry and disease management and stuff. It's it's not a perfect science, and there's always room for improvement as you learn more about what you're dealing with. Yeah. And t- take it as a learning lesson, and and take it as an experience, and you can enjoy the journey a little bit more because I know that I there's definitely times where I'm not really enjoying the journey that much. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. so, so you have to be like, well, let's, let's you know, start getting interested in, in reading books about crypto and not a virus yeah. and termics of virus and, and start really like when this stuff happens, like really, you know, get it, get into it. Uh, Take like, something I from know. it at least. You know? Yeah. You know, yeah. um, but yeah, unfortunately, the way I see it a, now too is, is, you know, it, yeah, it sucks. And yeah, it's not any fun, but there's a lot to, you can gain so much from those, those events too. Absolutely. You know, there's, and then you can take that and help other people with it as well. You know, and now it's like, yeah. you hear somebody else having a similar situation you know exactly what road they're going down. Like here's, here's what I did, you know, for what it's worth. Yep. Oh yeah. No, no. And we're, we're always open to talk to about it and, and everything, you know, there's no, there's no secrets here. Um, 
and uh, you know we we understand that uh, you know it's a part of it and happy to happy to help somebody you know and I, I think also when when people hear that they're a lot more willing to to talk about those things versus yeah. wanna wanna you know they're they're ashamed like they're they're not doing things right like I said I know of multiple zoos that are dealing with some some pretty serious disease go through their collection and. Um, you know, and these, these are some of the best zoos that are in the country, you know, and it, so it doesn't make you a, uh, you know, a bad keeper or, you know, a neglectful keeper or anything right. like that. It just, you know, the, the, the fact that you're looking into it more, or, you know, going to take your animals for testing and meat crossing shows that, that you are above board, you know, above board, above average keeper because you, you're, you know, you're, you're doing what most will not do and it's expensive too you know it's expensive yeah. to do you know necropsies and testing i mean each one of those we, we don't really get any breaks on on on, on anything you know just because p is in the, in the field um you know these tests still cost money these things are you know like you know there's no real way around it so um you know we're we're not made of money so we you know we uh we we have to you know kind of um really picking and choose yeah. like what what's going for knee crops you know when we're when we're dealing with you know these active outbreaks and, and stuff and if an animal you know if we've already tested a couple animals for crypto or something and another animal dies it's like oh do you spend another do you spend another 300 if there's an animal that was doing good and it exhibited these symptoms and it died you know, people always, always necropsy and, and uh, you know, send back samples to send in, you know, put it in form one. So if we need to test it, so we always hang back on samples if we need to. But right. sometimes we're just like, you know, we've, we've spent the money. We know that we know that this is in the collection. This is this is likely this because this animal has had a, hi a history of good health and all of a sudden declined and then crashed, exhibited the same ex the symptoms as the animals that have tested positive. You know, we're not, we're not going to send this one, but we will collect samples and freeze them if we need to use them. But, um, you know, it's, or it, it's a lot of money, you know, and there's just no yeah. way around that, but, but it's money well, well spent for, you know, if you're, if you have an animal that you've had for a while and, and all of a sudden it dies, um, you know, look into that. You look into that if everything yeah. has been going good and the animal's only five years old and out of the blue it died but none of your husbandry has changed and everything is perfect there it's exactly. like why did it die you know like yeah. that, that's where i'm like okay i've had i raised this animal this animal was picked uh, picture perfect of, of health um you know up until last the, the in or the coastal not coastal it's well same thing now but the papuan papuan taipan that animal is captive born um it's captive born by alcarats and we had it as a, a um, you know, a young snake and it was uh, just a perfect little taipan. And this within a week just went downhill, sagging Damn. skin, lo looked completely dehydrated, looked like it had, hadn't had a, it hadn't had a drink of water in, in, in a month and um, had a fresh, clean bowl of water right next. I've actually got video of it um, sitting next to the, the water um, and hooked it out put it in a can with a little bit of water, you know, just, just so it's sitting in the can and it will drink while it's in there. Um, and this snake just let me pull it out very, like it just was kind of limp on the hook and the tight yeah. hand shouldn't, shouldn't be limp on a hook. Um, and uh, I was able to flip it on its back with the hook in the can and it didn't write itself. And I was like, something is oh, clearly geez, wrong man. here. 
Um, and I was like, this snake is going to be dead by the end of the day. And sure enough, it was. We sent it in for necropsy. And that's when we found out it was crypto. That was for the first time. I was like, I was like, oh, great. It's, you know, uh, you know, at first I thought paramyxovirus because that's just kind of what I, I was in my head. And I was just, we had no past history of crypto in the collection mm-hmm. uh, out of all the necropsies and stuff that we've submitted. Nothing has ever came back with crypto. And this was, so that was a complete blind, um, blindsided, you know, shot there. And, um, and then, and that's when other animals started to exhibit signs and stuff. And it was just like, you know, um, you know, sometimes, I, you know, I'll say I've gone, if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any, um, yeah. but, but, uh, but <laughs> if, Albert it, King song, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's really how you, how you, how you look at it because, really you know these are these are lessons moving forward with with our development that i feel like we need to go through to be better moving forward with an even larger species collection in the future so like learning how to manage you know our collection is not small we're sitting somewhere around 200 snakes smaller than some people's collection but by most people when they hear you know you have 200 venomous snakes that uh you know, that's a lot to a lot yeah. of people, yeah. um, you know, of 70 different species, lots of diversity, lots of ability to hide uh, diseases very well amongst the different gen- genuses and stuff. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's just something that, it does, like I said, it doesn't feel good when you're going through it, but um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's like working out, you know, it doesn't feel good while you're like, while you're doing yeah. it, but it's the results that you're looking for uh, through all of that, that pain, you know, they say no pain, no gain. And, and really the only, the only real way to grow is through, through pain, you know, they call it growing pains for a reason, you know, and, and it's, yeah. uh, it's every time we go through this, you know, I go through a few different phases where it's like, just throw up the arms and say, I'm going to quit, <laughs> you know? And then after, after I'm being, done being a baby for 10 minutes, um then you know i'll get my game plan together and then we'll just go go at it and execute it and 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 be better next time and um you know it's uh i I just think it's important but um you got to embrace it you know you got to embrace disease and management and play and figure out how to how to do it to the best of your ability and it's there you know and if you don't if you don't think it is you know or you think that I, i have never seen anything in my collection i'm good and and whatnot you know it's just you're naive because it's gonna you know it's, it's yeah, it's, gonna yeah it's, gonna, it's bound to happen hopefully it doesn't and we we hope that it never does but you know it's being pragmatic and saying you know i hope it doesn't happen but if it does i'm mentally and physically prepared for it yeah no i hope no you know i don't hope i i hope i hope everybody gets to yeah. live long and prosper with their with their collections and they don't have to go through the same kind of heartache that we have. Right. We've lost some amazing right. animals that have been uh, dear to our hearts and stuff. And, and we like to pride ourselves on, you know, uh, the way that we manage the collection with our, with our, uh, you know, testing and disease management yeah. and stuff. And, and, you know, we've, we've definitely had some serious, you know, blows, you know, that, that uh, have knocked us down real hard that we had to get up from and keep going, you know, and that's all, that's all you could do. You could either quit, or learn and keep going, you know, and it's, it's like, I'm so, um, you know, I've been, you know, I'm 36 now. I've been doing this my whole life. Like I really like, 
there, there's really nothing else that I'm going to go, you know, that I want to go do. I could reinvent myself and go do something else if I wanted to, but you know, I've, I've, I've learned so much during my whole time doing this and, and professional development in this field that, that we can really help other people that are, that are doing this also help the animals that they're caring for and stuff. And it's like, it would, it would, it would be a, a waste to throw in the towel. Now, you know, that's a, right. it's a long, that's a long time, you know, yeah. to, to be oh, doing yeah. this to just quit. But there are, there are days where, you know, it, it's a thought, but then, then I'm like, well, what else would I do? <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's what we, it's um, what we love, man. It's what we love. Yeah. You know, and it's, uh, it was, it was, building a zoo is, is a lot different than, you know, working at a zoo. And when I got to collect a paycheck for my, my knowledge and experience versus, uh, you know, uh, building the zoo and, and, and that overhead and, and expenses. And then you, you're the one that, you know, when I was at the alligator farm, you know, we had, uh, you know, the vets from UF come every two weeks and, and see the animals and, and do everything, whatever I wanted to put on the vet list I could. And, yeah. you know, it was, you know, it was the alligator farms bill, you know, and, and it was less stressful. Now I understand what it, what, what it, what it's like to, to be a functioning zoo where, you know, you have to pay those bills and, and um you know it's it's uh it's a whole new new feeling it's uh it's definitely a lot of work and a lot of um you know uh trial error and frustration there is there is some joy in there i heard a quote the other day that i really liked that's you know not every day is good but there is some good in every day um that's that's good i like that yeah, and and that I kind of have been been thinking about that a lot lately. You know, when they, days are not so good, uh, or things are hard, or or whatnot. That you know, maybe today wasn't good, but what was good within this day that you can you know push on to the next day and and move forward from you know, and um, it's uh, keeps you going. I like it, man. I like it. And on that wonderful note, we are at the two hour mark. Smithy, anything and else? We are. No, it's good. It's good, man. It's well, good. thank you, Cody, for coming on tonight. And make sure that everyone goes and checks out the Reptile Preservation Institute on Instagram and Facebook, as well as Cody Bartolini's personal page because he loves the likes like we all do. And uh, tonight's episode was brought to you by the fine people of the Pacific Northwest, the Puget Sound Pythons, as well as BlackBoxCages.com. BlackBoxCages.com. You know it. You um, love it. Use the code THN at checkout. Save a little bit. It's worth uh, it. Can I, can yes. I, I yeah. Oh, I'm you're still, still here, on. man. I'm still on. Okay. Oh, yeah. I got still... thrown back in the No, game. no, no. You're, you're still in there. Um, you're still in there. Yeah. Hey, re- really quick. I know, like, we're dropping it kind of at the, the end of the show, but maybe maybe just a little teaser, and then we'll, we'll come back on, uh, you know, later to go into more detail with stuff as we have more details, but um we're uh uh partnering up with uh trc the rattlesnake conservancy on um some captive uh husbandry venomous courses um and uh we'll we'll uh, go into more detail about um all of that but um that's going to be happening uh this year tentatively in april we still have uh, other details internally to iron out um but uh yeah, so uh, just like the Rattlesnake Conservancy um, has their level one and two handling courses that um, kind of focus around 
uh, native to Florida species or native to the Southeast U.S. species. The captive husbandry course is going to be more geared towards that. Um, also, um, you know, there's, there's going to be one day of basically classroom uh, work of uh, you know, PowerPoints and lectures and stuff going over uh you know florida laws containment uh permitting stuff um and 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 all of that and then a practical day where um they'll the the students will be at our facility and um you know the physically working some of these different species and they'll and there, there'll be a multiple uh level course there i think you know nice. there'll be like a uh a level three and uh, four and so on, you know, because there, there's a lot to cover, you know, you're not going to oh, be yeah. working a black, you know, a 10 foot black mamba on your first day, you know, we're going to ease you into the stuff and teach the fundamentals to be successful, um, you know, moving forward with this stuff. And, you know, in the classroom, we'll be talking about procuring your own legal anti-venom and, 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 and all the stuff that, um, you know, we feel like there's not a lot of um, places to go to, to get that information. You know, here in, here in Florida, well, in Florida, you know, some people are willing to mentor, um, you know, for venomous experience. Some, you know, just don't want to deal with the hassle, the headache or the liability. Uh, so people that are looking to become licensed or looking for direction don't really have a good place to go and there's there's some people in florida that i i wouldn't necessarily want to learn from we'll just leave right. it at that yeah. so so we you know we feel like we're kind of obligated to um to 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 do that um we have the the knowledge and experience in the facility and we're, we're creating more facilities for uh just the, a training area to be able to handle these animals in a little bit more spacious area versus uh you know, confined in, 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 you know, closed areas with, with enclosures, although that'll be a part of it too, because captive management, but, um, you know, so we will be, and then, and then like I said, in, in, in partnership with the Rattlesnake Conservancy. So once we have more of the details ironed out, you know, maybe uh, uh, Pia, Tony Daly Cruz, Tiffany, myself, uh, you know, uh, could, could hop on and, and we could, you know have a little bit more details there but just yeah. a, a little teaser that that's that's coming in the future nice um and uh there, there's uh been some slight talk and promotion about it but but nothing nothing real heavy um as of yet like i said we're still uh, ironing out the details of how all that works and we're going to be adding some species to the collection that we don't have that are more more commonly seen in uh in, in human care you know, uh, you know things like monocle cobras we don't have in the collection currently but we feel like they're a very good training cobra because they're you know they're highly venomous very willing to bite you um and uh but not an overly big cobra and it's an animal that's uh commonly seen in venomous herpetoculture so it's a good animal to you know, have exposure to things like a spitalaps, um, gaboon vipers, puff adders, um, nice. some new tree vipers, you know, like albalabris and um, you know, uh, eyelash and things like that would, would, would be animal, you know, maybe uh, you know, some, some rattlesnakes like Western diamondbacks that are exotic to Florida, you know, not exotic to the U S but exotic, considered sure. exotic to, to Florida. Um, you know, cause the people that uh, take the TRC one and two course, they're working with Eastern Diamondbacks and 
cane brakes and copperheads and and water moccasins and stuff um so a western diamondback would be a you know a different uh type of, of rattlesnake there but well we we will we will kind of figure out what kind of snakes that we want to use for these things and then also um acquire the anti-venoms for those snakes uh you know prior to the um to the courses you know so we Excellent. have good at adequate stock for for well we're, we're hoping of course to never use the anti-venom right but uh you know we want to make sure that uh we we have all of our you know t's crossed and our eyes dotted there um yeah. and uh yeah so it should be a lot of fun you know and, and this this course can be for you know somebody who is who is wanting to get into keeping venomous reptiles it could be for a zoo professional that uh, is looking for some additional knowledge and techniques to take back to their zoo uh, to work with some of their stuff as well, or biologists in the field that, you know, maybe doing scientific research on these animals and learning new ways to secure them and, and, and work with them for, for their, their research or whatnot. Sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. And so that, that's something to look forward to in the horizon that we have, have cooking at the moment. Excellent. Excellent. Well, boys and girls, children of all ages, this has been Snakes and Stogies, episode 147 on the Herbiculture Network. My name is Phil Wolf. Joined as always is the illustrious Mr. Justin Smith and our special guest, Cody Bartolini from the Reptile Preservation Institute. Thank you. We will be back Thursday for THP as usual. And then Chris and I are working on getting a Corn Stars episode together for the following week. So. Awesome. Stuff's in the works, as usual. Love it. Thank you all. Bye. Cool, guys. See ya. Bye.